just jumping in really quickly at the start of today's episode to tell you about some upcoming opportunities to see us live in the flesh. And you can see us live at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival 2024. We are doing three live podcasts on Sundays at 3.30 at Basement Comedy Club, April 7, 14 and 21. You can get tickets at dogoonpod.com. Matt, you're also doing some shows around the country. That's right. I'm doing shows with Saren Jaimana, who's been on the show before. We're going to be in Perth in January, Adelaide in February, Melbourne through the festival in April and then Brisbane after that. I'm also doing Who Knew It's in Perth and Adelaide. Uh, details for all that stuff at mattstewartcomedy.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello and welcome to another episode of Do Go On. My name is Dave Warnicky and I'm sitting here in the lounge room of one Matt Stewart with Matt Stewart and Jess Perkins. It would be weird if we were here without Matt. Like we'd broken in. No, yeah. we have keys. He still hasn't still hasn't said anything. I mean, we all. I mean, it's, uh, you say my lounge room, but it's all of our lounge rooms. Yeah. I pe- did say that one time <laughs> that if the Saners uh, got up that day, that I would own the lounge room, and we got up uh, by thirty points, but. I, you know, that was only meant to be as a bit of a joke. You guys, it's still your house, it's your lounge room yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Thank so, you. That's, that's, that's okay. That's I know it's big of me and it took a lot, but <laughs> there you go. That's why we give you the top bunk. Yep, exactly. <laughs> top bunks for winners. Yeah. I'm the middle bunk because I'm working on it. You're just right. <laughs> I imagine we sleep on that three-tier bookshelf over there. Yeah. Matt's on the top. Uh, it's very small. Can yeah, his legs hang off the Supports edge. one plant, so. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. your room. Yeah, thank you so much for letting me sleep there. Hey, it's so good to have you here in your lounge room. Uh, Dave, did you have some huge news? Well, <laughs> speaking of bookshelves, you know, that's how you like to read them. Put them up your butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I shelve books. Uh, but on to my huge news. Mm. Uh, I'm very pleased to announce a new podcast that I've been quietly Ooh. working on for many, many months now. I told our Patreon supporters about this a long time ago. Yep. And now I'm finally delivering people. In many ways... It's You're delivering people? Yes. He's, he's created a new rideshare app. And I'm recording people secretly. <laughs> oh, Dave, no. Yeah. And then I'm going to blackmail them. Secretly. secretly. <laughs> Without their knowledge, I'm going to blackmail them. Secretly. <laughs> no, my new show, it's, a, it's in many ways a spin-off from our great podcast, Do Go On. The new show is called Book Cheat. Basically, it's a book club where I've read the book, so you don't have to. I don't have to. You don't have to. And you don't. none of you, you all don't have to read a book. Okay, Oprah. 
Each episode, I tell two special guests uh, about a book I've read, one of the classics, like a Dickens, an Austen, or Hemingway, that kind of thing. I tell them all about the book and its plot and character, so by the end of it, both the listeners and the guests can go to a swanky dinner party and pretend that they've read it. Oh, it means we can go to swanky dinner parties. That's, yes. That's why I've re- been avoiding swanky dinner parties yeah. up until so, now. I was so like, oh, what about the book chat? <laughs> the inevitable book chat. This show gives you a one-way ticket with no return ticket. That's great. Because normally when I go to a dinner party and book chat happens, I just give them the finger. Yeah. <laughs> but now I can return serve. And normally when I book a one-way ticket, I also book a return. Yeah. You it idiot. makes common sense. <laughs> I thought One I was way quoting this, to paradise. I thought that was a Simpsons reference, and I remembered it was from the IT crowd. Ah. So I'm sorry to the people that wanted me to make a Simpsons reference there. Uh, so I'm going to have loads <laughs> of guests from the Planet Broadcasting Network and from around the Australian comedy scene. I've already recorded a bunch of bunch of episodes. Matt, Jess, you've both been there. I've read. I've read to you. Well, in a way, yes. Yeah, in Fall a way. Asleep. The one I thought you were quoting was the Darkness song. Uh, a one-way one way ticket, ticket to, to hell, hell and, and back. back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I've never thought about that. <laughs> so fun. And I love the darkness, as discussed. And already blew my, it blew my mind then, and it blows my mind now. That I love the darkness. Yeah. Oh man, I had a poster. It's like river dance all over again. I have a t-shirt. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. I'm a surprising person. She loves stuff from the British Isles. That is true. Well, we'll be soon. She's a. She's a, a. What do you call those people? They're like Britophiles. Anglophiles. She's a real Anglophile. I like Britophile. Okay. Big fan of Brita. Big, big fan. Now, so just to sum this all up, my new show, Book Cheat, is launching this Monday, October the 8th on the Planet Broadcasting Network. You'll hear two episodes on that day, all about the classics. First of all, the picture of Dorian Gray from Oscar Wilde with guests Mr. Sunday Movies and Nick Mason from the Weekly Planet. And episode two will also be released with our very own Matt Stewart. Oh! <gasps> And Joel Dusha from Sands Pants Radio talking about Shakespeare's Othello. I yeah. love I love how ballsy it is to do a, a book show and on your very first release to do a play. That's going, this podcast doesn't give a fuck about your rules. Oh, yeah. I see a rule and I read a play <laughs> about the rule. This is exciting. This is now, now our empire has three podcasts. Oh, no, our mini network within the Planet Broadcasting Network gone to three. Jess, I would, wanted to say you're not left out of my show because the week or the episode after the first two, you're on it. And I basically host Matt's podcast also. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jess is a real regular. And we've obviously we've got a bubbling under the surface, phrasing the bar. I Jess and my wait. podcast about the career <laughs> and the... No, not the career, just the films. The filmography of the great Brendan Fraser. Yes. What? I don't think. Is it Fraser or Fraser? Yeah, we'll discuss that. Yeah, okay. that's e- one of the big episode topics. Episode one. Well, episode one through three. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <Achtung! laughs> <laughs> He's got a little German, little German warning there for our German friends. Yeah. Watch out. <laughs> anyway, to sum up here. Uh, please help me get the Book Cheat podcast off the ground by following it on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Book Cheat Pod. And you can give me a review on iTunes early on. That really, really helps get it up the charts and that kind of thing. So give it a crack. Maybe I'll make you a tiny bit smarter. Get it up the charts and get it up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shelve those books. <laughs> it's a really fun podcast. It was real fun to be on. Hopefully I didn't ruin it. But I, I reckon it's going to be the best podcast. And I don't make big calls. Wow. But this is going to be the best podcast of all time. Thank you so, so much. And at the end, the guests get to review the classics. So let's just say I look forward to listening back to you reviewing one of Shakespeare's classics. Yeah. I don't imagine he reviewed it very 
well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, poorly written review yeah. on the fly. <laughs> now, uh, also, finally, there's a couple of tickets left for our live podcast this Saturday afternoon at Hal, our Bon Voyage show here in Melbourne. So exciting. Is it this week, next week? No, it's this week, this Saturday. Holy moly. Which I am so, so excited about. Saturday, October the 13th. <gasps> A little hint there, spookiness. Maybe a little hint about the topics. Ooh, actually, it is not this week, Jess. You were right. <laughs> it was this week. If if it was Monday when I released Book Cheat, my my apologies. It is done Saturday week. Don't. Co- I mean, we'll be there a week early, obviously setting yeah, up. Obviously, yeah, we're not idiots. Podcasts are very technical. Yes. <laughs> So people don't realise. We do very thorough rehearsals. Yeah. Like, oh, this is all... Got to do blocking. Written, uh, is, that, is that the word I'm looking for? <laughs> yeah, we scripted. Every show, every show we, have we have a different, a different lighting. Oh, sorry, I was reading Matt's line. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> That's, yeah, see, M is for Matt. Yes, but my apologies. I thought I read M for m'lady. <laughs> <laughs> I read M for me. I thought it was M for man and I knew it wasn't me. <laughs> We should get cracking because it is blockbuster toba for grace. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, do you want to explain that to anyone who may have just tuned in? If you're just tuning in, which you may well be doing, uh, this is the first ever blockbuster toba for grace, <laughs> Larone, and it is <laughs> going to be huge. Uh, what we've done is we've we put out a vote uh, to everyone out there on the Twitters and also Facebook and we asked, what is your favourite kind of uh, topics that we do? And the top three, it's basically like an elaborate family feud game. Only that that's where the similarities end, the polling part. Anyway, <laughs> the top three are chosen. And we're going to go now from the next three weeks. It's going to be the third most popular, the second most, and then the first most. Ah. And then after that... To, to really bring home uh, the month with a bang, we're going to ha- do our most ever requested topic. And then the week after that, we're going to release the live Melbourne spooktacular episode. Oh, God. There's just so much happening. It is Blockbuster-tober, for grace. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that now Topher, Grace, and Will and Grace to both being referenced? Because that's awesome. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'll figure out how that is later. How Will and Grace... Topher for, for Grace. It's not Will for Grace, is it? Though it should have been. <laughs> I've always said that. <laughs> and then, so what happens once the three most popular kinds of topics were selected? Uh, Dave's chosen the, well, he's picked out the third most requested kind of topic, and then he's put it to a vote for our patrons, and that is how we got to today's topic. Yes, that is right. So, the third most popular kind of topic so we put things out there like is it uh you know a sporting star is it a mystery you know is it this thing that i'm about to talk about now is it a sports story is it a badass i can tell you that the third most popular do go on report style of topic is about quirky events from history Ooh, i love a quirky event i love a quirky event that's great do you know why we love quirky things because we're bloody quirky. We're bloody quirkheads over here. God. Takes quirk to know quirk. That's right. I say that a lot. <laughs> now, we're going to get going with the show. We always start with a question. I've written the report. You guys don't even know what it is on. And this was no, the... I looked at your computer before. Did you? Yeah, I know. I know what it is. What is it? Can I'll... you tell me? Oh, just answer the question. Yeah, I'll quick. answer the question well, let perfectly. Let me just say that that was a decoy topic. <laughs> hmm. What was... Uh, history of 
bananas. You just you're literally looking at the fruit bowl right now. I can I'm following your line of sight and you're <laughs> looking at the fruit bowl. Sheer coincidence. Which has far too many bananas in it. In 1681, the banana was invented by, by John Sir J- Ian Banana. <laughs> Sir John Ian Banana. You did read my report. Luckily, that was a decoy. So the real question is, and this is an extreme coincidence, which I've been. Mulling over for about 15 minutes now. This week, we keep with the literary theme that I brought up with Book Cheat. Oh, here we go. Coincidence. Time. Well, we it, go. it is a coincidence as well. There were three topics. Only one was literary based. Crossover episode. Patreon chose that. This, that's right. This so he's plugging his own little show, yeah, isn't he? All right, mate. Well, my, you know what my topic's going to be? About bloody apes. Mine's going to be about Brennan Fraser. <laughs> or Fraser. <gasps> Can't wait to find out. <laughs> <laughs> my question is, in 1938... A radio adaptation of which classic novel caused panic across oh, America? That is amazing. No way. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Is a, so, but earlier, <laughs> Matt, when you were out of the room, I went. I made a little <laughs> noise, and Jess was like, "What's that?" And I said, "I cannot wait to tell you tell you the coincidence," because I looked over on the sh- on your bookshelf. And there was a copy of the book that's the answer to this question. And then when you sat down, Matt, you said, oh, this is the book that one of our listeners, Tegan, Tegan gave to me to give to you for the new Book Cheat podcast. <laughs> that is so weird. And the one, is this your card? <laughs> oh, my God. That is freaky. The answer to the question, just what book am I holding up? Okay, let me guess. So, I'll just start reading some <laughs> from the bookshelf. <laughs> oh, it's going to be embarrassing. Um, is it uh, Time Quake by Kurt Vonnegut? So close. Oh, okay. Uh, How I Escaped My Certain Fate by Stuart Lee. Have read that, but no. Okay. Animal Farm? It is not Animal oh, Farm. I am running out of Jeez, guesses you are, here. You were being generous with Thank the ones you. you're reading out from the bookshelf. <laughs> trying to make you look worldly. <laughs> 1966, The Year of Gods. <laughs> the answer is, of course, War of the Worlds. It is H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Which, which I would just like to point out, had you not had your little backstory... I would have known the answer. You would have known the answer? Yes. Matt, would you have known yeah, the answer? Yeah, I knew that one too. That's the, a, it's the a great story. Year 12's the year ahead of me for their drama solos. One of the... Because you can choose from 10 different solos, like characters. Monologues? Yeah. Well, you write it yourself, but... Oh, right. Okay, sure. That's but interesting. you're given a basic character and... And an electric guitar. <laughs> <laughs> dramatic elements that you have to include. And one of the girls did War of the Worlds. Anyway... Wasn't that fun? Her name was Lucia. Oh, Lucia. I'm still Facebook friends with her. Great name. Lucia. Mm. Like that. Mm. Lucia. Luch. Luch. Can I ask you a question, Matt? Tegan, would you have any idea what her last name was? And where did you meet her? She gave you the book to give you. In the Gold Coast. Don't put me on the spot. I do know her last name. Is it Longman? Because this topic I'm about to tell you was suggested by Tegan Longman from the Gold Coast. Oh my okay, God. that this was is, probably... This is crazy. Uh, <laughs> I'm freaking out here. A few other people also suggested. Thank you to Charlie Ellis from Palm Desert in Texas. Daniel from Provo in Utah. And Mariah Davis, who was the first to submit it way back in the original hat. So this is a very old suggestion. The old hat when I used to just wear it to bed. I yeah. had that many suggestions in it. That was odd, wasn't it? That yeah. he did that. And we're like, Matt, take it off. He's overheating at yeah. night. What a sweaty topic. It was topics. smelling. <laughs> now, do you know much about the, apart from the drama solo from Lucia, much about this? Well, yeah, I, mean, I know it was Tom a, Cruise. It was a comprehensive solo, so yeah, I know the entire story. Thank you. Okay, great. Well, I'll direct this to Matt, <laughs> who seems to 
Oh, you know, Tom Cruise was Tom in? Cruise was in the radio play originally. Um, originally? Yeah, originally, obviously. Uh, and he... What year was that, sorry? Uh, the year of our Lord, 1879. Tom Cruise was in that. Yes. Okay, I'm just He checking. used to go by the name H.G. Nelson <laughs> from Roy and H.G. Rampaging Roy Slavin. <laughs> anyway, take take control of this back. Right, do you want me to just start the report? Yeah, yeah probably. Now, um, this whole story centres mainly around one man. Who? And he just happens to be one of the most remarkable people of the first half of the 20th century. That is a huge call. Yeah, a writer, actor... Director, magician, and radio maker. Ugh. His name too many was Orson Welles. That's a great name. It's a great name, but it's almost it's like too many. Like if he had a LinkedIn, it's too many things after his name. You know, like writer, director, oh. actor, uh, magician. Uh, I have a driver's license. Uh, it's like all right, <laughs> mate, is, we get it. The crazy thing is that he is a classic overachiever, and he's excellent at all of them. Of course yeah, he right. is. I know, but I, I understand that. As a podcaster, radio presenter, as actor, a comedian. <laughs> slash magician. No, I'm not a magician. Well, a slash musician, in a way. <laughs> in a way, I mean that drama solo, you saw someone play guitar apparently. Yeah. Big solo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Orson Welles was born George Orson Welles in Kenosha, Wisconsin on May 6th, 1915. 1915. Mm. A good year. <laughs> Good year if you uh, if you like world wars. It sounds awful when you say it. Well, start saying it again, then I won't have to. Yeah, we'll it. stop forcing it. We've had this discussion. Stop forcing it. Well, Just be casual and cool. I'm going to be casual and cool and force it. You look really casual and cool right now. Your shoulders are very casual and cool and not at all tense. It was a good year, that's all. Okay. <laughs> Great. Now, Kenosha in Wisconsin is quite a small city, but his parents, Richard and Beatrice, Beatrice. were both incredibly intelligent people who introduced their son to worlds that went far beyond his Wisconsin roots. I can show you the world beyond Wisconsin. Wow. (laughs) The original lyrics. Oh, they were able to do this because Richard Wells, his father, had made a fortune inventing... Dick Wells. Dickie Wells had made a fortune... (laughs) (laughs) He'd made a fortune inventing... Bad time to take a sip, Matt. Dickie Wells. He'd made a fortune inventing a type of lamp for bicycles. I love when you hear someone inventing a very specific product and they become very wealthy. I used to live next door to someone in my childhood home. They were quite wealthy because he'd invented some sort of lunchbox. All right. Wow. What a claim. Yeah, probably it was would have been one of those ones. You wouldn't even brag about that. Oh, his son was deeply embarrassed and I was fascinated yeah, by good. it and always ask questions. You should be embarrassed by why that. Why did you get, why do you have all that money? Uh, no reason. Yeah, don't Found worry it. about it. <laughs> Found it in a lunchbox. Dead in the mob. Much. Shut up. We've done bad things. <laughs> Killed a man. When really all your dad did was like create practical lunch carrying devices. That is, yeah, he's the kind of guy who also could have been an accountant. Yeah. You don't like practicalities, do you? No, just? I don't. I like whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I like those like little avocado holders or, you know. No one got rich on those, though. <laughs> no, because they're stupid. Yeah. But they're whimsical. Yet I own two. Yeah. What is Love going it. on? Love it. Anyway, so because of the, the wealth, Richard Wells, was, or Dickie Wells, pardon me, was mingled with actors and famous sports stars. His mother, this is Orson's mother, was also, an inf- uh, also influential on the young Orson, herself a concert pianist. She taught him how to play <laughs> the piano and the violin. So a Dickie and a penis. Huh, what a couple. <laughs> and when a dickie and a penis 
get together. They make a Wells, and he was a child prodigy. He was good at the violin and piano, and could also act, draw, paint, and write verse. Okay, well, what's our, what's the cutoff for a prodigy? Yeah, I was going to say. Serious, what's the criteria? Serious question: Can you be an adult prodigy? Yeah, I've dreamt about it before. Is it too late for me? I think so. What about me? I reckon you're borderline. <laughs> yes, so I've got to act fast. Yeah, but it's not too late. No, I Great. mean you could be a prodigy well, I of mean, like bowls or something that old people do. You're young for that. Okay, I could be a crochet prodigy. Yes. Mm. Ooh, crochet. <laughs> yeah, I'll make it cool again. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, Ooh, crochet. Crochet. That's cool. <laughs> oh, you guys aren't crocheting. What's up, lame? What's up, crochet homies? Do you think I could be the next Kelvin Kirkle of Australian bowls? If you I have said no, his name wrong. Damn it, Kelvin Kirko. If you have no further questions, then yes. Yep. Who's that? You, you're not a Kirko head? No. Nah. You Kirk head? No, nah, man. Oh, there's listeners out there absolutely throwing their phone across the room. They're frothing. They're, fr- they're fuming. Kelvin Kirko is one of the greats. Uh, anyway, look him up. Okay, great. Um, Just one of, the, one of the best of all time. Did it from a relatively young age. Right, well, I assume everyone paused the podcast for a minute there. Now, welcome back. Now, you've looked up Kevin Kirko. Kelvin Kirko, you piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Take your word for it. Uh, Wells, we're back to him. He also entertained his friends by performing magic tricks and staging many productions of Shakespeare's plays. He sounds like the worst friend ever. He's a real overachiever. It sounds like... In many ways, a beautiful childhood. But in reality, it was far from it. His parents separated when he was four years old and his mother died when he was nine. Orson's father became an alcoholic after his business and fortune faded and he died when Orson was just 13. Orphan so, or- Wells. Oh, you, you'd written it. but I, I had was, not written I, that. I, I had was, not. That was choking in my throat. I had not written that. He has not written it. That's, oh, I didn't mean to say it like that, but it was just that was beautifully written, if it was. Thank you. If but you it haven't wasn't. written it, well... You don't care. Don't give a shit. Oh. I'm all about the written word. Yeah, I'm true. I'm all about the riff. So well done, Dave. Orphan Wells. <laughs> that's that's the most brutal joke anyone's made. Oh, uh, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah, we've we've said some heinous we've things, some on worse this, things on this show. Other podcasts have said worse. Always from a good place. That's right. We say orphan with love. We love orphans. Yeah. Right? Yes. I yes. do. Little orphan Annie, one of the best in town. Yes, you anything you can do, I can do. Can better. I smell wet dog? <laughs> can I please? <laughs> <laughs> it was, is that a question? Can I? Yeah. Maybe it's, I think it was. Why can I smell that makes wet more sense. dog? Yeah, you take the word "why" off; it that, really changes. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like he's like seen a dog in a puddle on the side of the road, and he's like, "Can I smell your dog?" <laughs> and the woman's just like, mm, uh, please. "She said no," and then he repeated the question in case she couldn't hear it. Can I smell wet dog? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, oh. Thank you. That's good. That's going to keep me going for a couple of days. <laughs> Till I find Daddy Wallbucks. <laughs> Till I find another wet dog. <sighs> anyway, Orphan Wells was, oh, en- commit to that. was enrolled, well, just for this sentence, was enrolled into the very exclusive Todd School From in Woodstock. and Wizardry. Yeah, it was in uh, Woodstock in Illinois. Ooh, is that the Woodstock? I couldn't tell you. You could tell me. Why won't you? I'll commit to a no. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, just ten, 10 years after his older brother Richard had been there, but he'd been expelled for his bad behaviour. Orson didn't act out like his brother, however, but his theatrical gifts were encouraged and he staged modern and classical plays that entertained both teacher and student alike. 
Now, the school also had a radio station and radio classes, and this was Wells' first exposure to the medium that would play a large part in shaping his career. The first piece of radio that he made was a self-penned and performed adaptation of a Sherlock Holmes story. Ooh. Which one? <laughs> There's been a lot of times in past episodes we did a Shakespeare, we did a, a Sherlock Holmes. Mm. It's all coming up. So which one could it have been from all those ones we talked about? Ugh. Oh, they all roll off the tongue, but I won't bore you with them now. What, Sherlock? Yeah, there's different Sherlock. Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, the Sign of Four. Greg the Stop Sign. <laughs> there were plenty of, plenty of greats, and we just... Mm. I mean, we can't go into them all now. True, of course. Uh, when his father had died, Orson was taken in and adopted by Dr. Maurice Bernstein, who was a family friend who continued to encourage the now teenager. When he graduated from the exclusive school, he was offered a scholarship to Harvard University. <sighs> Hmm. but turned it down to travel to Europe using his inheritance. At age 16, so obviously finished school quite young, he walked into Dublin's Gate Theatre and brashly and falsely claimed to be a Broadway star and landed his first professional stage role. The director of the theatre later said, I knew he was lying, but he had chutzpah. He had confidence. He had a certain... Mm. How do I say? I just don't know. Jess, could you help me out here? Um, hmm. uh, I think, well, this is in Dublin, you said, Dave. Yes, that's right. There, I believe uh, they would call it a je ne sais quoi. Ah, oh, I was going to say they call it a tappy-tappy. <laughs> you really think they're a simple people, don't you, David? Yes, I mean, they you invented river dance. <laughs> and, and Guinness, another thing that's tapped. <laughs> the pun, <laughs> it's not a pun king, damn. <laughs> He's here, though. Good to have you here, Matt. Uh, Wells remained in Ireland for a year, acting with the company at the Abbey Theatre as well as at the Gate. He also designed sets, wrote a newspaper column, and began directing his own plays. With his eyes set on Broadway or the West End, in 1932, Wells left Dublin and tried to get work on the stages of London and New York City. But for the first time in his life, he was unsuccessful at something, and he instead had to travel for another year, and he went to Morocco and Spain. Oh, what Poor a failure. <laughs> oh, I do. I, I'm starting to feel for this, man. I got the first ever gig I, I went for by walking in. And also, you just go travelling and then walk into a theatre and get a job. Like, visas. Hello. Yeah. I told you this guy is remarkable. And in Ireland as well. We wanted to do a show in Ireland, but apparently the visa process was going to be a pain in the old A hole. Yeah, obviously, separate country to the UK and one step harder than the UK. We needed a piece of paper and applications and money to to be maybe denied. It it was a bit too much. But Orson, he's a Broadway star. It was going to be a pain in our A hole. We are... Broadway podcasters. <laughs> I didn't believe in them, but they had a certain je ne sais quoi. That's the customs officer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Later interviewed. Yeah. When we're I knew they weren't Broadway. That's what? in America, <laughs> and they're Australian. But they had a certain... Tappy-tappy. <laughs> as we say here in Ireland. <laughs> One tap for Michael Flat, another tap for Mr Guinness. <laughs> tappy, tappy. <laughs> <laughs> Orson broke into professional theatre in the USA the next year, so he only had to wait one more oh, year. Oh, after travelling another year. More. <laughs> Poor baby. More. But Morocco was hard. Oh, Spain. Yuck. I mean, he's also still just a teenager as well. I don't care. Uh, he met the... No, that's what I mean. Like, it's like he hasn't ha- had to wait or anything. He met the successful novelist and playwright Thornton Wilder. Fuck. Oh, that hot. Are you kidding me? His name often gets stuck in my head because I think it might be one of my favourites. Thornton Wilder. I'm weirdly attracted to that name. Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. Nah, not weirdly. It's just straight up hot. Hell yeah. Is anyone else picturing a mix between Gene Wilder and Dave Thornton? Oh, uh, okay. No, <laughs> I was thinking Nigel Thornberry. Ooh. But Dave Thornton makes a lot more sense. What about Dave Thornton meets Van Wilder, party liaison? Oh, that's oh. a hot combo. Oh, that's a hot combo. <laughs> Hell yeah. Throw in Gene Wilder's... Um, Comic timing. Comic timing. <laughs> Take that, Thorno. <laughs> the only thing this gorgeous man needs is some comic timing. I'm sorry. He's a. He's a, very funny. He's a very funny man. Incredibly funny comedian and a lovely person. The big two. Yeah, those are the big two. So Orson met uh, this beautiful man, Thornton Van Wilder, party liaison, who introduced Orson to the famous stage actress Catherine Cornell who was putting together a touring theatre company and he was cast in three touring plays, including Romeo and Juliet. So now he's got ongoing acting work. His performance caught the attention of director John Houseman. Who also knew he wasn't a Broadway star, but he had a certain (laughs) tappy-tappy. As they say in the biz. John Houseman, that's... That that is at the other end of the spectrum, isn't it? Oh come on! That's, that's so. no, that's him looking around yeah, like that is a fake totally, name. Uh, John, he's looked at a toilet and then a house <laughs> and then a man. And a man. <laughs> uh, John House Man. Oh, pleased to meet you, John Houseman. I knew that wasn't his real name, but he had a certain. <laughs> <laughs> So, director John Houseman cast Wells in his Federal Theatre Project, which is a program to fund theatre and other live artistic performances and entertainment programs in the US during the Great Depression. Trying to, you know, no one else could afford to keep the theatre going, so they invested in it to try and keep a bit of morale going up. That's good. The arts are important. They actually are. Yeah, I wasn't being sarcastic. (laughs) Uh, Jess, they actually are. (laughs) Sorry if my delivery betrayed me in that way. Usually I hide when I think you're a fucking idiot, but somehow I just slipped out. No, I just genuinely... They are. They're very important. It's hard to be serious on this silly show. <laughs> it's hard to be genuine. It's hard to it is. to just be vulnerable in the space. But I mm. welcome both Terrorism of Terrorism is bad. <laughs> it I... actually is, Dave. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought I was just making a little quip. Dave, wow. Well, it actually is like seriously so bad. Um, Dave. <laughs> seriously? Matt. How bad is terrorism? Oh, that's, I'd say one of the worst. I feel like you don't, Yeah, yeah like good joke, guys. Good joke. We all know it's not. Right? <laughs> oh, no, my Dave, God. Don't, don't start a new one of these. Oh, no. No. <laughs> don't back me into a corner here. Um, yeah, that's not a lot that's of backing, us, Yeah. We somehow we were backing away, and you still ended up in a corner. <laughs> we were giving you more and more space, and you put yourself in a corner and said, "You did this." Why? You guys were like, "Hey, there's the door," and I was like, "Fuck that door! I'm getting in this corner." Fetal position. Yeah. No way out. No way. The door's wide open, Dave. Just wander across the room. Dave, we'll turn our back and count to thirty. Nah, it's a trick. This corner's safe. Anyway, Dave's insane. Just to clarify, art's good. Terrorism, bad. Oh. <laughs> Thank God. Changed his body tune, didn't he? <laughs> it wasn't the other way around. Had a little bit of time to think in the corner and it came out <laughs> on top. <laughs> anyway, so Houseman, John Houseman, Houseman, and Wells would team up on a number of projects. In 1935, when Wells was still just 20 years old, he directed and wrote an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth with an all-black cast, something that was very out there for the time. Wells moved the setting of the play from Scotland to Haiti, and the huge production had a cast of 150 people. Whoa. Oh, that's big. That's huge. 
huge. What is this, the Olympics opening <laughs> ceremony? No, or no, it was a box office. <laughs> <laughs> I know the theatre. <laughs> they moved the setting of this opening a ceremony hun- to Haiti. A hundred and fifty. <laughs> it's a big production, Jess. <laughs> I'm going to fill the whole SCG <laughs> on the floor. Olympics, there's a lot of costume changes. Yes, of course there are. And that's not even counting the horses. There's like seven or eight of them. Horse whisperer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I'm going to jump on you now. I'm going to ride around in a circle and you're going to look like you're having a good time, okay? <laughs> I love you. Yeah, I'm going to change costumes, I know. Two, two of those guys are in a horse. Oh, God, that hurt. <laughs> anyway, this cast of uh, Macbeth, 150 people, it was a box office sensation. How many people are playing Macbeth? <laughs> Nine. Yeah. Nine Macbeth. <laughs> the smart good. thing about it is if everyone brings a relative or two, you're going to sell out a lot sell of shows. Sell it every night. Yeah. Uh, the production is regarded as a landmark theatrical event because of its innovative interpretation of the play, its success in promoting African-American theatre, and its role in securing the reputation of its 20-year-old director, who was again praised as a prodigy. Of course he was. It's funny that you say, um, like, if everybody just brings a relative or two, because you'd think that most people have, like, one or two relatives, but... Um, oh, no. Orson. A certain Orson Wells doesn't have any. It's like, okay, um, where are your guests? Well, he's got his brother, a little dicky. Big dicky. Oh, big dicky. What's the dad? <laughs> Even bigger dicky. <laughs> We just call him even bigger dick. <laughs> anyway, it was a massive, a massive success, and then it toured the USA. This, all this was happening whilst uh, Orson was supplementing his income with radio work in Manhattan, and he was pouring his radio money into theatrical productions that had not much money during the Great Depression. So he's making quite good coin, but his big passion is theatre. So he just basically spends it all on his Imagine shows. Touring a show with 150 people. That's crazy. Like isn't accommodation it? and. Imagine the Airbnb, you oh, know? It's like locusts coming to town. Yeah. By the time they leave, not, there's nothing left in the shops. Yeah, the the shopkeepers just standing there like dumb It's like, what just happened? Much the same when we go on our UK tour and I go buy snacks. Yeah. <laughs> what just what? happened? Yeah. Where are all the that? musk sticks gone? <laughs> Why did she buy 50 Whisper Bars and 90 Yorkies? <laughs> <laughs> love those, love those. I'm just going to fill the boot. There won't be any room for our bags, so they'll be sitting on top of me in the back seat and the boot will be filled with snacks. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Or me in the back seat covered in snacks. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's fun. <laughs> Swimming through them. Yeah. Uh, after directing a few more plays, Wells and John Houseman, <laughs> with the power of house... <laughs> <laughs> Music, house music. His power is he's always home. <laughs> Brings it on the road. If you lived here, you'd be home by now. I am. I'm John Houseman. <laughs> is that a gillism? He's not. He's not jo- John Home Man. No, no. <laughs> John Houseman and Wells teamed up again in th- 1937 to form the Mercury Theatre Company. Uh, the company's first production was again a Shakespeare. This time, Julius Caesar. It was performed in modern-day clothing with tones of fascist Italy. Very political, it was received with acclaim. And this was on Broadway now, so Mal- Wells was now properly making it as a director. So he was a Broadway man now. Yeah, ah. good enough for Broadway. Acting, directing, doing it all. 
Uh, the Mercury Theatre had a core company of actors. The lead one was Orson Welles. Uh, one of which was also a young Vincent Price. Ooh, oh. Vinny P. Yeah, there you Who's go. Who's that? <laughs> 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 Basically, you'd know him as the, the voiceover in Thriller. The Michael Jackson video. Oh, sick voice. Yeah, that evil oh, voice yes, at the end yeah, laughing. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yep, there exactly. It is. Yeah, that's a great voice. Uh, they put on more plays that were well received, everything's going well. Wells really started to put himself on the map, exemplified by the fact that he appeared in full stage makeup on the cover of Time magazine oh, wow. in nineteen thirty eight, just three days after his twenty third birthday. Fuck off. So Time magazine goes far that back. Whoa. Goes yeah. far that back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it went so far back that that sentence would have made sense back then. Goes far that back. What was that? I was doing that old Tommy talk. That's how they talk in the 30s. The well, year was 1932. <laughs> two. Two. Hey, that's how we talk back here. We talk 32. Hey, I'm working in the farm here. Oh, oh, hey. John Travolta's grandfather. Hey, what are you have? This is my hey, whore. This is my whorehouse? <laughs> House oh. man. House man. This is my whole house man. I am a whore, whore house man. Well, you have to leave, sir. <laughs> this is a children's playground. <laughs> I am playhouse man. <laughs> Woo! Uh, Wells was still working in the radio world and had become quite well known for voicing The Shadow. In the radio show of the same name, which I believe now saying that out loud, Nick Mason may have mentioned The Shadow. It was like an early superhero. Early comic book character. Yeah. Yeah. The Shadow. Hmm. The Shadow. Uh, Wells' deep voice was one of his trademarks. Hello, I am Orson Welles. Dave Callan, is that you? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Hello there. (laughs) There's Dave. (laughs) Uh, Because of Wells' prolific output, he was earning quite a lot of money. He was raking it in, as they say. After a successful adaptation of Les Mis, Wells and the Mercury Theatre and its core of players were hired to make a radio show that adapted famous novels into radio dramas. The show was originally named First Person Singular, which I think we can all agree is a very catchy title, (laughs) mainly because there was lots of... You're being sarcastic, right? Yes. Because it sucks. It sucks, but there was a lot of monologues, that's why it was called that. But I didn't want to do a Dave and be like, terrorism's the best, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't want to be like... Yeah, that's so good. I love that title. And then you'd turn around and be like, Jess, we were joking. And I'd go, I know. Because I am ruthless. Brutal and ruthless with my takedowns. You are ruthless. (laughs) Go on, leave me ruthless. (laughs) So it's called First Person Singular. It later changed its name to The Mercury Theatre on Air. Better. A little bit better. Floating. The show was very low budget because it didn't have a sponsor, but it gained a cult following. It first aired on July 11, 1938, and was on air on CBS Radio on Monday nights at 9pm. Then after two months, it changed its slot to Sundays at 8pm, prime time. Sundays at 8. Even back then. <laughs> God, to get one of those slots now. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, one of those sweet radio slots at 8 o'clock. Uh. Hell yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I'd love an 8 o'clock, because I'm currently from 1am to 6am. Uh, Jess... That is the sweet spot. Yeah, it's the prime time. Dave works on a show that's on at... What, you, what time's your show on? I watch it every night, obviously. I just want to make that clear. We support you. Thank I just you so don't... I, I watch it on uh, 10 Play. Right. 
so I don't know about the time of it. If that's what you're asking, <laughs> if that's what you're insinuating, I obviously watch it every, every night. night. <laughs> but at at my own leisure, of course. Yeah, but every night. But you don't watch it live from six thirty to seven thirty. Live at six thirty to seven thirty, although I would love to. Anyway, the Mercury Theatre on air. Ah, yep. have you noticed I haven't got up to the War of the Worlds part yet? Yeah, sorry, I'm oh. having fun. No, I'm just saying. No, 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 it's fine. So basically, we'll, we'll ha- shut up. How the show would work was. <laughs> It went out at, on 8pm on a Sunday. A small orchestra and sound effects Foley team would accompany the actors who would rehearse before going out live, but when they were going out, they would read the scripts in front of them. Wells was asked to play the lead role each week, and he also directed the productions. So it's very much his show. That's my kind of acting job too, where nobody can see you and you've got a script in front of you. Isn't that... Oh, I love that, actually. I love that. That is a good idea. Mm. Wells demanded perfection, particularly with the sound effects, many of which had to be developed to satisfy the young director. Boing. Stiffy. <laughs> it's bit, a versatile one, that one. A little bit more boing. Womp, 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 womp. Sad Stiffy. <laughs> stiffy going down. <laughs> stiffy going up. <laughs> stiffy denied. <laughs> <laughs> Hopeful Stiffy. <laughs> Sad Stiffy. <laughs> <laughs> Stiffy in the wind. <laughs> that one. It's an ejaculation. That sounds like, no, sound like someone using a <laughs> stiff, Stiffy for a pole vault. Chariots of Stiffies. He, he looks off into the middle distance as he does this. It was one of those. He really goes off into it. Oh, this meal is quite stiffy. That's when you've you've committed to holding a plate from the kitchen to the table. Yeah, you're not going to drop a meal. You're in no man's land, so. So, Wells demanded perfection, just like that. I wish I was around his day, because he really could have used the man of a thousand noises. Oh. The caliber. I don't think anyone else has ever hit my caliber of noise. No. Give me. Um, just give me a quick one now, just to prove. Some I've actually got one coming up. Don't okay, give great. him a quick one. <laughs> give me a quick one, Dave. <laughs> and then we'll go back to the book. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first episode was an adaptation of Dracula, and the team struggled to find the right sound. <laughs> Right sound for the stake going through Dracula's heart. How would you do that? Stake through a heart. <laughs> I mean, to me, questions sounds a little bit like um, questions, James, comments. James Bond has snuck up on someone and karate chopped them on the back of the neck. Can you do that again for me? Oh, that, sorry, that's what it was. Isn't that what you said? Yeah, James Bond singing up karate chopping. Karate chopping Dracula's heart. Yeah, that's what it did. How to go? Go again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now it sounds more like someone's like bitten off more than they can chew with a big apple. Isn't that what you said? <laughs> well, basically. Yeah. Well, what they did was they f- they first presented to Wells a cabbage and a sharpened broomstick. Much too leafy, Wells concluded. Drill a hole in the cabbage and fill it with water. We need blood. Yeah, vampires aren't leafy. <laughs> too leafy. <laughs> too leafy. <laughs> a little bit of leaves, sure. <laughs> As we all know, vampires are a leafy animal. But. This is a little too leafy. We want a wet leaf. I want to film that. I want to get that leaf. I want to. 
He turned on my leaves. <laughs> Sorry. Mm. Sorry, when I am Orson Wells, I go all in and he is turned on by leaves. It's a prodigy of leaves. Yeah. yeah he's good at everything, including... Fucking leaves. <laughs> I was going to say loving leaves, but... Sure. You know, if you want to get to straight to the brass tacks. <laughs> brass tacks, what do they sound like? Oh, that's them underwater. <laughs> well, they just fell into a pond. <laughs> they fell into a pond. <laughs> Don't dive in after those. Jesus, the Mexican walking fish is going to have a pretty big bad day. Fum, 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 fum. There's the Mexican walking fish. Uh, anyway, he didn't like that, so he called for a watermelon, which I can only assume he humped and then headbutted. Obviously, yeah. as is as due process. Yeah. <laughs> then he hit it with a hammer <laughs> to create a harrowing sound effect. Matt, what would a hammer on a watermelon sound? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was just the warm-up. That was just the warm-up. Okay. <clears throat> That's just the warm-up. I mean, I don't know why he tried to drink while Matt was doing yeah, a sound effect. Jess, I thought that was I could stupid. swallow his time, but he... Yeah. <laughs> Did you pick that up? He's punched uh, himself think, in the face. Yeah, that was violent. <laughs> you getting that? <laughs> I'm getting that loud and clear. Oh, I just have my wisdom teeth. Oh, you, oh <laughs> don't hit your face. <laughs> uh, questions, comments? <laughs> Over the next 16 weeks, the Mercury Theatre adapted classics like Treasure Island, A Tale of Two Cities, The 39 Steps, Jane Eyre, and many others. Most of which are on my radar for my new podcast, Book Cheat, <laughs> available this Monday, October 8th. You piece of shit. That's Thank the you. worst. I've never done that about Primates, which is out every Thursday <laughs> night slash Friday, depending on where in the world you are. We've had topics like Rise of the Planet of the Apes and uh, Beast Wars. Congo. And Congo. And two episodes on The Simpsons and Counting. What day of the week is Phrasing the Bar going to come out of? Because we've got Monday, Wednesday and Thursday covered now. So we go Tuesday or Friday. Yeah, I think they're both good options. All right, it seems like a fun Friday t- kind of podcast to Thank me. Thank you. You're driving to work. You're like, put on a bit of uh, Phrasing the Bar. Phrasing the Bar Fridays. Oh. Phrasing Fridays. Love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Oh, love it. <laughs> I've written here. Anyway, back to the story after my plug. Uh, it was on October 30th, 1938, week 17 of the show, that the players would perform the show that would put them and Orson Welles on the map. <gasps> For the 17th week, Wells decided to take a different approach. He wanted to adapt a story, but make it sound like it was actually happening live and that the story would be presented as a news show reporting on real events rather than a typical scripted radio play. Orson brought the idea to John Houseman and director Paul Stewart and they discussed <gasps> which... Sp- spelt the same way as you, you? Do you know Paul? Yeah, my dad. <laughs> Oh, was Dad. he director in the 1930s? Yes, I assume. Why did I forget his name's Paul? Yeah, I thought you'd know. I mean, you know. I know him I know, well. I know your dad's John, your mum's Annie. Yeah. We've got John, your dad's Paul, my dad, of course, Ringo. <laughs> Martin. <laughs> okay, Martin. Marty. Marty boy, if you're listening, thanks so much. Appreciate the support. He's not listening. What if he could? 
I mean, he's alive. He just doesn't listen to podcasts. Just doesn't have ears. <laughs> the man with no ears. Uh, anyway, so Paul Stewart, John Houseman, Orson, together they discussed which classic they would adapt in this newsy way. It was eventually decided that they would adapt the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds. A quick background here on the story, including spoilers. So if you don't want me to spoil what happens in The War of the Worlds, maybe you skip ahead and don't listen to Book Cheat because I really ruin books. <laughs> Wait, don't you make it more enjoyable or something? Yes. <laughs> Make them easier to palate. You can devour a classic in a single setting. Single sitting? setting? Sitting. Really working on that tagline. Yeah, it's not great. Setting? Sitting. Sitting. If I'd said sitting, you would have been clapping me out of this lounge room. We'd, yeah, as we yeah. always do every Get night. Get out of here. <laughs> Clap, With claps. Because you know I'm, I'm Every night when you go, all right, guys, I'm going to go to bed, we, we applaud. Yeah, yeah, and I go, is that thunder? And it's then terrifying. he hides under his bed for a while. Until we asleep. get some body peas and quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Please. We put on a put on a, a murder she wrote and um, have a great time. Crack open a, a block of chucky and have a couple of uh, hot hot uh, dogs <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> what a combo! And hot, hot toddies. Hot, hot toddies. That's what I was. And trying. hot doggies. Hot doggies. <laughs> we put on a real spread. Is that yeah. when you dip a sausage in a hot toddy? Yeah. Yeah, well, you bite each end of the hot dog and then you drink the hot toddy <laughs> through the dog. Yeah. Come on, mate. <laughs> when I was little, I don't think I've told you this story. When I was little, mum used to play tennis every, I think it was Monday night or it was Monday or Wednesday. It's important to get this right. <laughs> Should we call it? One Conference night. call. Let's hold. No, let's hold. I need to know if this is a Monday or a Wednesday. Monday night. Do you reckon I could Google it? No. Uh, the results are in. It was a Monday night. <laughs> no, nah, get fucked. This story is going to be so good, please. So we would have mum would go and play tennis, and so sorry, which night? Monday. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and for dad and I, it would be like our little secret chocolate night. Ooh. Like we'd have like there'd be a block of like peppermint, my favourite, be chocolate, and we'd have like oh after dinner once mum's gone to tennis, oh we'll get out the chocolate, but shh, don't tell mum. It was all this big thing of like a lot of winking between dad and I, and all very exciting. Yep, see you later, mum. Have a good time. <laughs> You're winking her out the door. Yep, all right. Oh, so I couldn't wait for her to leave. Um, and I found out years later, mum was well aware of chocolate <laughs> night and often bought the chocolate for us. Oh well, I mean that's sweet. She'd have it ready for chocolate night. That's that's all. Be- that's really Isn't that sweet. Cute? That is very sweet. Oh, that's just a classic story of betrayal. Nah, it's cute from every perspective. Cute. I'm little, already adorable. I had a fringe. Uh, bit of a lisp, probably. Who knows? Uh, cute for dad, having a little daddy daughter time. That's nice. Cute for mum, facilitating that daddy daughter yeah. time, and, and getting also a bit of exercise. As having well. a bit of mum time. Yeah, a bit of mum time. And getting those, buddy, what do you get? What are these Endorphins. Things? Endorphins. I thought you were going to say serves down the centre of the court. Probably a bit of those, oh, down too. The, right down the tee. Oh, she was great at those. Oh, she's gone right down the tee. She's oh, faked. Wow. Oh, it's, oh, it's a kicker. Kick, kicking out to the side. Oh, it's a little, kick, little kick on that one. That's Annie. What's that, uh, 40 Love? Oh, bang, bang, bang. They used to call her Pistol Pete. Yeah. Sampress. <laughs> <laughs> it was confusing, because at the yeah, time, it was um, she did have a big mono brow, and people... <laughs> But also a great serve. Mm. Mm. Anyway, if you, if you have skipped ahead, we still haven't told you the story <laughs> of the War of the Worlds. So here it is. It's a science fiction novel by English author H.G. Wells, first serialised in 1897 by Pearson's Magazine in the UK and by Cosmopolitan, Cosmo, wow. in the US. Wow. Really? Cosmo Nine did something 
interesting. In 1897. Huh. Huh. Your... It wasn't all just gobby tips. <laughs> is that a thing? It's like all it is. Just gobby tips. Yeah. What's the number one tip? I Cup the balls. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, 1897, that's the year that the VFL began also. Big year. Big yeah. year. Big gobby year. tips and footy. Gobby <laughs> tips. I've not heard the term gobby in a long, long time. Is that what you're talking about, gobbies? Yeah. Is that an, is that an Australianism? Or? Uh, I think people will figure it out in the context, to be honest. No, I was just wondering. Cause <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, cup lo- the balls. What could he be talking about? <laughs> <laughs> balls again? Is he talking about Kevin Coco? He <laughs> He's always talking about Coco. Is he talking about Kevin Coco again? Could he be Kevin Coco again? A very influential book. It was one of the earliest stories that detail a conflict between mankind and an extraterrestrial race. To summarise it, the story recounts a Martian invasion of Great Britain around the turn of the 20th century. The invaders easily, de- easily defeat the British army thanks to their advanced weaponry, inc- pew, 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 including pew. a heat ray and poisonous black smoke. <laughs> <laughs> Jess, yep. you're trotting on my... <laughs> yeah, that's how it feels. No, your territory. <laughs> Wait, have I, what have, have I been adorable lately? Yeah. <laughs> have I been adorable? Is that my thing? If oh, you want it to be, I, I don't know. That. It's yeah. not offensive. No, nah, I love that. Big fan. That's your brand. Except when strangers say it, then it's weird. Yeah, Jesus. Don't message me and say you're adorable. Get fucked. I mean, it is strange that you put it out there know, that you sorry. are adorable and then you're like, don't tell me the thing I say. <laughs> yeah, I'm allowed to say it. I know me. You do, don't you? You know you and you do you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> anyway, when the aliens are easily taking over, they are suddenly killed by an earthly disease to which they have no immunity. The Smithsonian writes, The novel is a powerful satire of British imperialism. The most powerful coloniser in the world suddenly finds itself being colonised. Yeah, how do you like that? So that's the... You hot doggies. <laughs> that's the original 1897 story. But by 1938, the year of the radio broadcast... The War of the Worlds was well known in popular culture and frequently adapted in comic strips or other popular adventure stories. Perhaps because of this, Orson Welles decided that this was the perfect novel to adapt in the news bulletin style. Right. That makes sense. Like you'd never heard it before. I didn't know it was a well-known story. Yeah, because that makes it seem dumber that everyone got fooled by it. Yes, but they do a lot of creative license for the story. Right. A lot of adaptation. The main one being that it's not in the UK. They set it in the USA. Oh, okay. Well, that's such a far leap. I can't possibly make any connections <laughs> No, but if you're, if you're at home in New York and you hear, oh, UK's being taken over, you're not going to be as scared. You're going to be like, well, poor them. Yeah, proximity. It's what we learned in journalism school. Is that it? You just learned about proximity? Yeah, I didn't learn much. <laughs> that thing's near you. It wasn't a and particularly class. good school, to be honest. You know, name and shame? Nah. Uh, well selected the book, but because he was so busy, writer Howard Koch was hired to adapt it into a script. Koch would later go on to co-write Casablanca, for which he won an Academy Award, before being... With the famous line, tell me about it, stud. <laughs> Isn't it? It finishes <laughs> off by... And yeah, that's, that's how it opens. And then at the end, there's that famous line where it goes, fuck off, idiot. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And he won the Academy Award for that. Mm. He was before being black. Tell me about it, stud. <laughs> I love that arc, though. How do you get from one to the other? Right. That's the beauty of it. Uh, storytelling. Yeah. Mm, they mm. don't make it like that anymore. No, they do not. That's kosh for you. 
There's a piano in the middle. Yeah. Self-playing. It's real fun. Yeah, it's so good. But ding 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 ding. <laughs> uh, Kosh was eventually blacklisted by Hollywood <laughs> for allegedly being a communist. So oh. did not end well for him. Blacklisted. Yeah, he wasn't allowed to work in Hollywood anymore. Uh, well, that guy Kosh took a dislike to the War of the Worlds when he first read it, finding it a little dull. At Yawn. This t- at this time, alien stories were stuffed for children and not really believed by the general population. So he thought it was a bit of a dated story and he had less than a week to turn it into a radio show. Kosh worked on the script for three days before giving up. He rang the producer John House Mann, <laughs> saying that he was really struggling and asked if Orson would consider another story instead. House Mann told the writer Kosh that Wells had his heart set on the War of the Worlds and Kosh gritted his teeth and got back into adapting it. The truth, however, was that the producer, John Houseman, had called Orson to ask about the possibility of adapting another classic in, the, in this new format, but he couldn't even get on to him. Wells was busy rehearsing his next play and had reportedly been uh, doing so for 36 hours straight. Oh, is that what they call it, huh? <laughs> rehearsing <laughs> for a play. <laughs> Cupping the balls. <laughs> <laughs> for 36 hours that's, straight. That's the number one tip. Yeah. Keep going for 36, 36 hours. 36 hours or... He doesn't love you. <laughs> Cup through the pain. <laughs> Wells didn't even have time to think about the War of the Worlds. And looking back career-wise, that was probably a good thing. Uh, Kosh worked on the script of the story that he hated day and night, and finally he had a draft ready. A small number of the Mercury Theatre actors rehearsed what he'd written without Orson there, and it was generally agreed that this style, new style of script without the usual live soundtrack was an absolute disaster. At this stage, the radio script was divided into two equal parts, much like the original novel. The first half was devoted to the fake news bulletin about a Martian invasion. The second half was mostly lengthy monologues from the character to be played by Orson, as the journalistic character recounts to the audience what it's like wandering the streets after the aliens have ravaged the city. Mm. Wells finally read the script and suggested that the second half was a tad on the long side, (laughs) and that the monologue just kept a kept describing things would be quite boring and he suggested that they extend the first half and make the news bulletin longer. Apart from that, he was too busy for any real notes so producer Houseman and director Stewart were in charge of notes to give to Kosh who had to very quickly rewrite the script that he already hated. Right. Great. He was getting lots of rewrites. It sounds a lot like, uh, you know, the um, podcasts that have been going around the last few years of that sort of f- false... Realism, uh, but science fiction-y ones. You oh, right, yes. Like uh, Welcome to Night Vale is the really popular one. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there. That's It's in a, just how you're describing it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's really coming to vogue in the last few years. Yeah, this is 1938. Isn't that amazing? Mm, a good year. This is pre-podcast. <gasps> just. Is it? When did podcast event? 39. No, I thought it was when we started. <laughs> yeah, 39. A good year. Seven years. Seventy years of unrecorded episodes. Unbelievable. Uh, but this, because the newsy just, bit grew, I was just trying to get it all loose there. Oh, good year. That was better. Yes. Uh, because the newsy bit grew and the second half shrunk, this meant that unlike usual radio shows of the time, the break that usually happened halfway through the show would come two thirds of the way through the hour. I love that. I love a late interval. So when you really need to pee, <laughs> and you're going, I'm bored and I need to pee. Oh, and keep- it keeps going. And then you just come come back for a bit at the end and you're like, that was fucking pointless. (laughs) Uh, I love that. Should have just peed. Should have just peed and left. Yeah. (laughs) Should have peed on the stage. (laughs) And left. Yeah. It'd be weird if I stayed. (laughs) Just staring at 
standing on stage. Get back to your seat. Never breaking eye contact. (laughs) Now that's a power play if I've ever seen one. And you have. (laughs) Uh, A. Brad Schwartz in the... Smithsonian. A. His name is A. Dot Brad. He's a writer. He's written a book about this, and he wrote an article in the about Smithsonian. About his name being A. Dot Brad. <laughs> no, about the. Uh, his friend well, is B. Br- dot Brad. <laughs> uh, he writes in the Smithsonian. Apparently, no one in the Mercury realized—that's the theatre company—that listeners who tuned in late and missed the opening announcements would have to wait almost forty minutes for a disclaimer explaining that the show was fiction. Radio listeners had come to expect that fictional programs would be interrupted on the half hour for station identification. Breaking news, on the other hand, failed to follow those rules. People who believed the broadcast to be real would be even more convinced when the station failed to break at 8.30pm. Who listens... Oh, okay, pre-TV. Yeah, so... Radi- I was going to say, who knows that so well? This is when radio is massive. Yeah, yeah. Like millions of mean? people. Radio is still huge. Yeah, it's not dying at all. What? Mum? <laughs> What was that? I've, I've given up everything for radio. You hang in there. Okay. Newspapers are coming back. Great. Great. I was not talking about newspapers. I, radio. I work in radio. That's coming back too. Coming back? Yeah. It's booming now, isn't it? Yep. Whew. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. <laughs> Nearly told Jess the truth then. What's that? <laughs> Can you hear this too? Yeah, you said that out loud. Oh. I thought I could talk to Matt telepathically. <laughs> <laughs> no, this whole time you've just been talking to him and I've just been listening. Mm, she's listening in, Matt. <laughs> Do you hear that? No. Are you, hear, are you hearing what I've been saying to you? Yeah. Yeah. What? Can you keep yours down? Can you hear what I've been saying to him? What? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you looking at me? But not saying anything. Matt's just been telepathically giving me great gobby tips. <laughs> and I'm just like... <laughs> I don't. Why I played. do you need gobby tips? It's mainly just believe in yourself. <laughs> and look, honestly... Have fun. It's the best advice I ever got. <laughs> just if you, you know, just enjoy yourself. And you know, respect each other. Yeah. Uh, some of these last minute revisions also changed how the story unfolded to the audience. Two moments that interrupted the fictional news broadcast with regular dramatic scenes were deleted or revised. At Houseman's suggestion, Kosh also removed some specific mentions of the passage of time, such as one character's reference to, quote, last night's massacre. All of these things contributed to making it seem like it was genuine news unfolding in real time. And it wasn't just the writers that put effort in to make it seem real. Frank Reddick, the... Reddick. <laughs> Reddick? He's... Redick. Mm. Name's actually Redick. Frank Redick. Redick. <laughs> yeah. That's bad. Or Redick. If or, you're still out there, Frank, I'm sorry. Or Redick. Red- Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. If it's your first ever website or your business is expanding, not in a way that's like, oh my God, it's expanding like yeah, yeah. More physically. Like it's growing more customers, yes. more interest. Not like it's going to explode. Yeah, not like it's a building that's like blowing up and yeah, it's, yeah. oh, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Squarespace makes it easy to create a beautiful website and engage with your audience. And I don't think they mean for marriage. You can sell your products on an online store, whether you sell physical or digital products or you offer services like massage or oh. nails oh my gosh. or uh, consulting. Should we after this get mani-pedis? <laughs> Babe, I've already booked us in. <laughs> um, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. You know, what about blogging tools, you yeah. might be asking? I like to blog. I love to blog. I like to blog. I like to vlog. Yes. Well, Squarespace has powerful blogging tools to share stories, photos, videos, and updates. You can categorize, you can share, and schedule to make your content work for you. Scheduling is the best. Oh, yeah. It looks like Jess has just uploaded something, What it? but it's like 3 a.m. in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, but it's the exact time I wanted to do it in New York City, baby. Exactly. Capture that New York market. Yeah. You mentioned vlogging as well. If you're into vlogging, you can organise your video library, showcase your content on beautiful video pages, sell access to your videos with member areas. The possibilities are endless. Now head to squarespace.com slash do go on for a free trial and save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Dick. Redick. If at first you don't succeed, redick and redick again. <laughs> That's my gobby tip. <laughs> Number nine. <laughs> uh, Frank Reddick, the actor, cast as the news reporter, reporter who witnessed the Martians arrival. Listen to recordings of our old mate, Herbert. Oh, the humanity Morrison. Oh. The guy describing the Hindenburg disaster. Yes. He imitated not only his tone, but also his cries. <gasps> to make it sound. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a big Wah. baby. Yeah, not for the Hindenburg thing, just like where he had recorded himself crying. Yeah. yeah. He's a famous crier. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Town my, cry. my wife left. <laughs> I'll never love again. <laughs> A lot of that. Real sook. Uh, so in, in the play, it was more like, oh, the aliens have invaded. <laughs> uh, I'll never love again. Why? Why? My wife's an alien. <laughs> Basically, my wife's an alien and she left me. Yeah, from an alien. Yeah, what a bitch. The way. <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> Honestly, you're better off it. Uh-huh. What a straight up bitch. I never liked her. Uh, there are also fewer sound cues than usual, but the ones that were in there were delivered with precision. And watermelons. <laughs> yeah, precisely hit watermelons. Aura Nichols, head of the sound effects department at CBS in That's New York. That's a great name. Aura, Aura Nichols. Mm. That's good. She was tasked with creating incredibly believable sounds of alien war machines. <laughs> I mean, they're not quite that realistic. <laughs> oh, Padawan. <laughs> it's great. I'd, it's so good to finally have someone studying underneath me. Uh, all these years I've, I've yearned for a mentee. Mm. And... It feels good <laughs> to have you on board. <laughs> manatee. <laughs> oh, this is the. Sorry, I've yearned for an amenity. Oh, this is about the original 
Woman of a Thousand Voices, Matt, from the 1930s. According to... What? <laughs> that was one of hers. 96. According to Leonard Moulton's book, The Great American Broadcast, Wells later sent Nichols a handwritten note thanking her for, quote, the best job anyone could ever do for anybody. Wow. Oh, is that... Oh. <laughs> God. In terms of sound effects. Yeah, no, that's what we're reacting to also. So she absolutely nailed it. Also, a side note on Aura, she was one of the few people to ever stand up to Wells. After he called her a crackpot during one of the rehearsals, she walked out and only came back to work after he apologised to her publicly. Yeah, Great. boss like bitch, that. yes. Love it. Also, I like standing up. How I'm going to stand up to you is walk away. Yep. Yeah, that'll show you. And it did. If I can did. So that's something that no one would ever dare ask of Orson Welles. So she was a real badass in that way. So they put all this effort in, but none of them predicted they would get the reaction they would receive. Lawyers even looked at the script and made only very minor changes, like changing the names of real institu- institutions mentioned in the story to stop themselves being sued. But no one was like, this is a bit too real. Yeah, right. No yeah. one said that. Radio critic Ben Gross. <laughs> all these names are so top notch. <laughs> recalled asking one of the actors what they had planned for Sunday's show and he replied... Just between us, it's lousy, and that it will, quote, probably bore you to death. Wells later told the Saturday Evening Post that he had called the studio to see how things were going and received a very similar dismal review. Very dull, very dull, a technician told him. It'll put him to sleep. Wow. So they didn't have a lot of faith no in it. No one has faith in this project. Uh, so expectations are very low. This worried Wells. His theatre show wasn't going well, and uh, he was going to have to do what he always did whip the radio show into shape montage oh my god training montage they're running up and down stairs they're doing exercises I need a hero yes and he's yelling at everyone except Aura yeah and then he's apologising to her publicly and she's like fist pumping yeah yeah that's great He's like crossing out things on paper and throwing it out and then going again. Setting fire, slapping Vincent Price across the face. Yeah. Oh, I love this. I love a training montage. Almost as much as I love a shopping montage. Fuck, oh, I love when a they shopping montage. Coming out of the wardrobe in different outfits. Yes. And there's and the, always one first, that's weird and they look at him like, nah. Yeah. And then they come out in a second one and they kind of go, yeah, it's better. And then they come out in the one and it's like, yes. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love, a, I so love a shopping like, montage. Orson's doing that, and people have to remind him, mate, this is radio. He's like, this is an important part of the process. I love a montage, he says. Make some montage sound effects, you fucks, he said. <laughs> really, what he did was just hours before showtime, as usual, Orson Wells rocked up for the last rehearsal. So he's left them to their own devices all week, and then a few hours beforehand, he comes and he's like, what do you got? What an absolute devo. Yeah. <laughs> mm, whip it good. <laughs> Uh, he read the script and hated it. According to his producer, House Man, outbursts like this were very usual for Orson. He yelled at the cast and crew, calling them lazy and ignorant and claiming that it was up to him to save them yet again, all while secretly, secretly loving it. He really thrived under pressure. He throved. Oh, I hate... Ugh. You don't like throve? I don't, I don't like... I, you know what? I'm reacting to something there that I see in myself. That's what it is. And that is that... I also am much, much better at the last minute and under pressure. And I hate that about me because I really wish I was more organized because I always get to the last minute and I go, fuck, 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 fuck. And I hate it. But Cue montage. give me three days to do a, an easy thing and I won't do it. Okay. 
Um, in three days, can you pass me that banana? Within the next three days? Yeah. Yeah, right. Montage. You can do it right now. Yeah, but I know. I just need it in the next three days. Within the next three days? Yeah. Okay, great. It's a montage of Jess sitting still for three <laughs> days and then going, <laughs> fuck, 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 <laughs> the banana. <laughs> That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like I do. Well, it's what Wells does too and what he does best. He decided to, uh, he walked in and he decided to change everything. He decided to slow down the opening of the news bulletin in order to try and make it seem more realistic. Houseman objected strenuously, claiming that it was now going to be tedious to listen to. Because mm. it was just basically, for the first 10 minutes, a boring bulletin. But Wells overruled him, believing that listeners would only accept the unrealistic speed of the invasion if the broadcast started slowly, then gradually sped up, rather than, oh my God, suddenly it's happening. Uh, Wells also added back in something that Kosh had cut out from the first draft, a speech from the Secretary of War. Wells assigned the role to actor Kenneth Delmar, an actor who was known for his impression or impersonation of then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt. During this time, the networks had expressed rules against impersonating the president. You're not allowed to do that. So rather than actually tell Delmar that he should do his impression of FDR, Wells merely asked the man to be a bit more, quote, presidential with his delivery and then winked at him. Okay. Is that enough to get around a rule like that? And Delmar knew what he meant. I'm not saying which president you should... Which president? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wells, which president? Uh, this would also add to the confusion of listeners. Was the president really telling them about an alien invasion? How good is his impression? Apparently spot on. Because uh, you think about like Malcolm Turnbull impressions. They're always like caricatures, but back then the impressionists just did... Sort of like a Baldwin Trump kind of thing. Yeah. You know? Like quite good. Yeah. Quite good, but still humorous. Yeah. Oh, you listen to it and go, oh, very good. I recognize that. Very good. Mm, very good. Mm, 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 mm. Yes. Our pres- I forgot our Prime Minister has changed. Scott Morrison, but has Changes anyone done a ScoMo yet? Why would you? Go Sharkies! Yeah, nice. Got him. He loves the sharks. Uh-huh. Not the animal. Well, probably the animal. The Cronulla Sharks, the rugby team. Probably hates the real animals. Yeah. Dog. <laughs> you dog. Such a hot doggy. <laughs> Confused by yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Finally, it was time for the show to go to air. And you have to remember... It's a reminder that Sunday evening in 1938 was prime time in the golden age of radio. So millions of Americans and their families had their radios turned on. They sat down. Millions. Millions. But wow. most of these Americans, however, were, lis- were listening to ventriloquist Ed- Edgar Bergen and his dummy Charlie McCarthy. They were listening to a ventriloquist <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. on the radio. I mean, it's a pretty easy gig, isn't it? You could basically have two actors and just pretend you're doing it. They were listening to a ventriloquist. Yes, you have to remember, this is 1938. They're a simple on people. Right. Okay, all right, that's great. Well, that's the perfect segue because I wanted to tell you guys about my new podcast, Ventriloquism with Jess. <laughs> and it's me and my puppet. Uh, I'll just get my puppet out now. Okay, wow. <laughs> Hello. That's me talking to my puppet. Hey, puppet, uh, can you just? Uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to have a big gl- uh, sip of water. Um, okay. What, what did you do today? Oh, I tell you what, glug, I didn't do. Glug, glug, oh no, I'm glug, drowning! Glug, glug. I'm drowning! Oh no! You did what a, a thing. You did a thing really well where you're both singing the Australian national anthem at the same time. 
Mm. Have you have a bit of an example of that? Oh, me and my puppet. You and your puppet, of course. Yeah, well, we both sing the Australian national anthem. Yes, it's amazing. Out of different sides of your mouth, apparently. Australians, it's music to my ears. Yeah, thank you. I've worked really hard on it. So please tune into my podcast, Ventriloquism with Jess. Wow, our you network fucking is, morons. Our network is really expanding. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to wait to announce it, but it just felt topical now. <laughs> you don't want to miss this opportunity. Matt, why are you laughing? Do you love my idea? Yeah, sorry, I just came back. <laughs> just been out for a couple minutes. What I miss? I was just talking about my new podcast, the ventriloquism one. Oh, that's a great one. You've got real good skills. Yeah, I've been working I was wondering on why you've been sitting with that dummy on your leg all day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All day. Oh, Scott Morrison, you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I hope he does a great job for the country. And um, if he's listening, go Sharkies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, basically, so most people are listening to this very popular ventriloquism act. It's still unbelievable. That's on NBC. Come if you didn't think of that. No, I was just like, ventriloquism. Makes sense. Is there any greater art? It's like listening to a a magician. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Trust me, it was the right card. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Every trick ends with that line yeah. And it's always My god he's done it again the oh, ne- the next Coin sh- behind your ear <laughs> Got the, it <laughs> The show afterwards Is the one that rated real high The mime hour <laughs> <laughs> Spot on Wow it's like he's in a box I find mime confusing At the best of time So it would be Doubly confusing because you're a very literal person. I watch people do mime, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, wow!" I knew what he was doing the whole time, and I was like, "Was was that a bird? What <laughs> the you, fuck was that?" You watch people do mime all the time, <laughs> all the time. Wow, you Dave. know I was big at the comedy festival for a couple of years. Get new friends, I reckon. Who keeps taking you to mime? Were you going alone? I mean, it can be very good. One of the best shows I've ever I ever saw was Doctor Brown's one, but I knew what he was doing. That's why I was impressed. Anyway, I didn't think of him as a mime. But you didn't speak for an hour. Is that what miming is? Just not talking. Because I'm a mime every night. In bed. <laughs> hey <laughs> Tip number nine. Stay silent. It drives I, him crazy. I that's call not... I call him quite clown. That's not miming. That's quite clowning. Clowning, yeah. Are you getting clowning and miming confused? That is definitely mime. Great. Okay, yep. Anyway, people are listening to Mime on the radio. Can so you believe this? Fucking ridiculous. That's on NBC. They only tuned in, this is the majority of people, to CBS at 8.12pm after the comedy sketch ended and a little-known singer went on. By then, the story of the Martian invasion was well underway and many people missed this announcement. This is how the show starts. Columbia Broadcasting System and affiliated station present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Right, okay. So it's a clear announcement. Mm-hmm. Then some music played, then Wells did a small introduction, then a weather report played, and this is how History.com describes the first few minutes of the radio play. After the weather, the announcer took the listeners to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by some music from Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. That was all a quote from the announcer. Hmm. Uh, Putrid dance music played for some time. Remember, History.com's words, not mine. Putrid. Putrid. And then the scare began. An announcer broke in to report that, quote, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory had detected explosions on the planet Mars. Then the dance music came back on, followed by another interruption in which listeners were informed that a large meteor had crashed into farmers' fields. 
or a farmer's field in Grover's Mills, New Jersey. New Jersey! Right, so within a few minutes... Yeah, so there's... Interrupt. We interrupt this program to tell you about Explosion on Mars. Anyway, back to your music. We've got another announcement, guys! A meteor's hit the Earth! Okay, it's a lot happening in a short... It's a lot happening. ...span of time. And this is well slowed that down, too. So the other guy wanted to just go straight action, but he Love wanted it. to make it... Uh, you know, sound a bit more realistic. By this time, American audiences had become accustomed to news reports interrupting radio programs. They had heard them often during the war scare in Europe in late summer and the early autumn of 1938. So it's not weird for an announcer to be like, we interrupt this program to tell you about some yeah. some crazy breaking news. It's You know, it sounds real. Soon, an announcer was at the crash site describing a Martian emerging from a large metallic cylinder. Good heavens, he declared. Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a grey snake. Now there's another, and another one, and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the thing's body now. It's large, large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The Ah. eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips Mm. and that seem to quiver and pulsate. Great. Great words on the spot. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I can't describe it. Here's a script. (laughs) And some great acting there, Dave. Thank you so much. I can really see that drama degree. Mm. Thank you. I really did want him to say when he said awful, I wanted him to say beautiful. (laughs) Can you read that line ending it with beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> it glistens like wet leather. But that face, it, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming over. The tentacles are... Mm. <laughs> so smoochable. <laughs> Tip number six really coming in handy. <laughs> Tip number six of eight tentacles. <laughs> Then the Martians mounted walking machines. This is where Aura's... Oh, no, they're mounting our walking machines, (laughs) pumping and pumping away. Oh, no, he's making sweet, sweet love to the tank. (laughs) (laughs) Down the barrel. You watch these aliens get out of there. (laughs) And then they just say, oh, yeah. How do you like that? Do you like that? Is that good for you? <laughs> they just get back in and fly away. And the army's left there going, what the hell just happened? And the tank's just like, what? <laughs> uh, then the aliens fired heat ray weapons at the puny humans gathered around the crash site. They annihilated a, for- a force of 7,000 National Guardsmen. And after being attacked by artillery and bombers, the Martians released a poisonous gas into the air. Farting all over the place. Jeez. <laughs> Excuse, <laughs> Excuse us, I'm just trying to make love to a cannon. Soon Martian cylinders, quote, that's in quotation that's what they call marks. they dicks. <laughs> Martian cylinders. Landed in Chicago and St. Louis. Uh, if you want to hear the whole radio broadcast, it's all on YouTube and I will link to the recording in the episode Oh, that's so cool that it still exists. That's yeah, great. so it still yeah, totally exists. Cool. You can listen to it. I like, who's describing humans as puny? The, the reporter's like, oh, us puny humans. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't turn on yourself so quickly, man. Yeah, hey. You guys are all right. Yeah. yeah, the aliens come along and just start beating everyone up. No, you, you're going to put up a good fight. You are so puny humans. <laughs> At home, people hearing it were apparently panicking and not realising that they were listening, that what they were listening to was fiction. 
As the broadcast continued, a deluge of calls continued to light up switchboards across the country. In some quarters, there were even vague reports of suicides and panic-related deaths. Oh, no, please. No, 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 please. Producer John Houseman... I love Houseman. ...noticed that at about 8.32pm, so just over halfway through the show, CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor... What a name, Davidson... ...received a telephone call in the control room. Creasing his lips, Taylor left the studio and returned four minutes later, quote, pale as death, as he had been ordered to interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast immediately with an announcement of the program's fictional content. However... By the time the order was given, the program had already less than a minute was already less than a minute away from its scheduled halftime break, that forty minute mark I was talking about. And the fictional news reporter, played by actor Ray Collins, was choking on poison gas as the Martians overwhelmed New York. <laughs> I love that. You'd be like, Sir, we're only a minute away and he's gonna choke in a second, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, the radio station caught on to the panic and announcements were made at 10.30pm, 11.30pm and midnight. And they said, quote, For those listeners who tuned into Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre on the air broadcast from 8 to 9pm tonight and did not realise that the program was merely a modernised adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, we are repeating the fact, which was made clear four times on the program, <laughs> that while some, of the, some American cities' names were used as in all novels and dramatizations, the entire story and all its incidents were fictitious. Wow. So they had to make that announcement on the hour, on the half hour and at midnight three more times. Wow. Shortly after midnight, one of the cast, a late arrival, told Wells that news about the War of the Worlds was being flashed in Times Square. They immediately left the theatre and standing on the corner of Broadway and 42nd Street, they read the lighted bulletin that circled the New York Times building. Quote, Orson Welles causes panic. This is when the new shit was going down. Whoa. Of course, this is all well before the internet outrage, before the Twitter machine and news websites these days would obviously spread that in a second. But the next day, the program was in the newspapers for all the wrong reasons. Apparently, it had been too realistic and frightening for its audience, causing panic across America. That's incredible. <laughs> that is. That's, yeah. It's, it feels like enough people would have heard... The warning parts to have been like, the pa- there's panic going around. Your neighbour would be like, "Oh no, that's just a mm. yeah, saw some wells, saw some wells." It's a it's just a play, guys. Just relax. Yeah. You see someone like packing up everything, <laughs> like I'm moving. I don't move. Oh wait, you, can I buy a house? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you ten bucks. I suppose you're obviously panic selling, so I'll lowball you. I'll, that's I'll okay. panic buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, aliens are coming. I better buy all the property <laughs> I can. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> uh, morning papers from coast to coast reported on the mass hysteria it had caused. The front page of nearly every newspaper was about this, including the New York Times, which read, Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. I love old, old headlines. That is really making them sound silly, isn't it? It to- totally is. In Providence, Rhode Island, weeping and hysterical hysterical women... Swamp the Providence Journal with calls asking for more details of the, quote, massacre. In Pittsburgh, Associated Press reported a man returned home in the middle of the broadcast and found his wife with a bottle of poison in her hand saying, I'd rather die this way than like that. I'd rather die with this poison rather than with their poison. (laughs) I don't want any of that alien poison killing me. Have you seen what they've done? I'll die with (laughs) the stars and stripes poison in me. Thank you very much. God bless America. (laughs) Glug, 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 glug. 
In San Francisco, police fielded hundreds of calls from frightened listeners, including one man who wanted to volunteer to help fight the Martian invaders. What a champ. Apparently in New Jersey, terrified civilians jammed highways, seeking to escape the alien marauders. People begged police for gas masks to save them from the toxic gas and asked electric companies to turn off the power so that the Martians wouldn't see their lights. One woman ran into an Indian... Can't apple- get to the switch. <laughs> it's, I can get to the phone, though. One woman ran into an Indianapolis church where every where evening services were being held and yelled, New York has been destroyed. It's the end of the world. Go home and prepare to die. Okay, let people just enjoy their service, I, mean, I reckon. How do you... Yeah, how, prepare to die. That is a great phrase. What do you do when you're preparing to die? I imagine you go to church. So that lady had right. it all wrong. Yeah. All wrong. Stay here we and are. prepare <laughs> to die. <laughs> <laughs> The good news is you don't have to commute anywhere. <laughs> the highways are packed. Don't worry about it. This is where you need to be. This, in fact, I'd say this is a stroke of luck that you're here yeah. waiting to die. All right. Sorry for interrupting. Bye. Bye. I've got to go to the next church. Tell them the good news. <laughs> uh, nearly 1,400 people sent letters and telegrams to Wells himself in the days following the War of the Worlds. Dear Mr. Wells, I, for one, do not find it very funny. (laughs) Your little radio play made me shit my pants. (laughs) I was wearing my most expensive pants that day. You owe me a pair of pants, Mr. Wells. I'll wait here pantsless until you reply. Forever yours, cold on the bottom half. You'll know it's me, because I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> That's I'm amazed at how, yeah, at the reaction to that. That's incredible. It's crazy. It was all the media could talk about, so Orson had to front the press. The day after the broadcast, CBS made him hold a press conference to answer the journalist's many questions. Wells thought he had done serious damage to his reputation. Quote, if I'd planned to wreck my career, he told people at the time, couldn't have gone about it better. So he's really quite worried. Fearing his livelihood was on the line, Wells went before dozens of reporters, photographers and newsreel cameramen in the CBS building. Each journalist asked him some variation of the same basic question. Had he intended or did he at all anticipate the War of the Worlds would throw its audience into panic? At the press conference, Wells repeatedly denied that he'd ever intended to deceive his audience. But this has been debated over the years. He was a genius in every other thing he did. Maybe he was also a marketing genius too. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. (laughs) So, what I just told you about the panic is the story that the media of the time pushed forward and for decades was accepted as to what had happened. A 23-year-old genius had accidentally fooled the nation and caused chaos and destruction all with some sounds and actors. But is that the whole truth? Oh my God, there's a twist. This has increasingly increasingly come into question over the last decade or so. More people have been talking about it. So all the major newspapers presented sweeping claims about thousands or even millions of panic-stricken Americans. They offered little supporting documentation. Most newspapers printed dispatches sent by wire services, such as the Associated Press, AP, which extrapolated widespread fear from a small number of scattered and anecdotal accounts. Newspapers, moreover, reported no deaths or serious injuries relating to the War of the Worlds broadcast. Had panic and hysteria seized America that night? 
then surely we would have caused many deaths and injuries, one would think. But there was no evidence of anyone actually being hurt. Right. They got rid of the bodies. <gasps> aliens. <laughs> That's the twist. There really was aliens. I mean, if you're going to strike... That's a perfect the time. The perfect time as an alien force. Then everyone's like, yeah, that was a source in Wales. You're like, case closed. Nice. I humped a tank <laughs> and I left. <laughs> I humped a tank. <laughs> I just, love that alien accent. They're just really stupid, <laughs> horny aliens. <laughs> I got right into that cannon hole. <laughs> All <Goodbye>. right. <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> My work here is done. I'll call you in the morning, tits. Talking to the tank. <laughs> uh, the BBC writes, For newspapers, the so-called panic broadcasts brought newspapers an exceptional opportunity to censure radio, a still new medium that was becoming a serious competitor in providing news and advertising. So was it just newspapers having a cop at radio that it saw as a threat? Radio is news, but it has adult responsibilities, chided the New York Times. It has not mastered itself or is the material it uses. Another shot at the radio. And there were studies published to back up the panic. Uh, Social psychologist Hadley Cantrell and the Radio Research Project at Princeton University launched an immediate investigation into the panic in hopes of gaining fresh insight into the power of propaganda. But their research was fatally flawed because Cantrell's team interviewed only a relatively handful of mostly frightened listeners in New Jersey, where all sources agreed that the panic where sources agreed that the panic was the most intense. In New Jersey. So they went to New Jersey where the panic was crazy, and then they said, well, if that happened here, that's probably what happened everywhere. Let's right. extrapolate. Let's extrapolate that. I love an extrapolation. I love the word. I love saying it. And this made the panic seem even... <laughs> I like how you didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. The word. <laughs> I like that word you said. <laughs> I, I'd like to imagine myself saying it sometime. <laughs> the next three days. <laughs> so basically, th- this um, you know, university account made the panic seem more extensive and pronounced than it possibly actually was. And of course, as is often the way with uh, cult stories like this, over time the event became legendary and more people claimed to have heard it live. Oh. As weeks, just like the Challenger disaster in my last report, Everyone, re- it's such a big news event. Everyone's like, "Yeah, I saw that live." We had listeners who said that. Yeah, um, yeah, because a lot of them were school children yes. at the time, which were watching it live. Right, which is so tragic. Oh, and awful. I apologise for bringing up any bad memories for those people. Uh, as weeks, months, and years passed, the audience's size, this is for the War of the World, swelled to such an extent that you might actually believe most of America was tuned into CBS that night. But that was hardly the case. Far fewer people had heard the broadcast and fewer still were actually panicked by it. The night the program aired, C.E. Hooper Rating Service telephoned, telephoned 5,000 households for its national rating survey. Basically, they call a house up and say, to which program are you listening to tonight? Only 2% answered a radio play or the Wars and Wells program. None said news broadcast, according to a summary published in Broadcasting. In other words, 98% of those surveyed were listening to something else or nothing at all that night. Gotcha. Wow. So, again, this is extrapolation from 5,000 households, but... They would call up (coughs) say, what are you listening to? What are you listening to to right now? Yeah, but I wouldn't tell them, would I? Yeah, you might lie. If if Netflix did that and called up and said, what are you watching? I'd be like, doco. (laughs) Yeah. It's never a doco. <laughs> it's always Kimmy Schmidt. Mm-hmm. 
The Kimmy, same thing. Kimmy Schmidt Docker. Yeah. Imagine if that's how the internet did ratings. What yeah. are you? What are you looking at on the internet right now? Oh, right. Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, yeah. Britannica. Nobody would be like porn. You got me. Sexy porn. <laughs> That'll throw them off the scent. <laughs> when I look at this unsexy porn. <laughs> <laughs> oh yuck! Oh, oh. oh no! Oh, so, look at that tank. <laughs> so basically, what I that info I just read comes from a, a Slate magazine article, and they were saying if more people were listening, they, more people would have responded to this survey. Mm. So basically, they think that this radio program, which you know had a cult following, but wasn't the most famous program on the radio at the time that maybe not that many people were listening to it. And because of that, obviously less people were panicking. Right. And as for the rumours of suicides, the rumour was checked and found to be inaccurate. You'll be happy to hear, Matt. Uh, when the same researchers surveyed six New York City hospitals six weeks after the broadcast, none of them had any record of any cases brought in specifically on the account of the broadcast. No specific death was ever conclusively attributed to the drama. One particularly frightened listener did try and sue CBS for $50,000, which is a... Oh, I'm so frightened. Fortune oh. at the time. That's so much. That's a lot now. She claimed the network caused her nervous shock. Okay. Oh. Her lawsuit was quickly dismissed. Good. She didn't get any money. Uh, the show was influential in style, however. The Federal Communications Commission chairman... What a sentence. Yeah. Frank <laughs> McNinch... You nailed it. Thank you. He quickly obtained in an informal agreement from the radio networks that fictional news flashes would not be used again. Killjoy. So there were no official rules or reg- regulations, but all the radio networks agreed, all right, we won't do that kind of program anymore, <laughs> just in case. Because people are idiots. Again, another thing that says that people did know that it was fiction was that Announcements that the War of the Worlds was a dramatisation were made at four points during the broadcast. Yeah. At the beginning, before the middle break, after the middle break, and at the end. So a lot of people who were a little bit tricked stayed glued to the radio waiting for information. And if you listened to it all, you would go, oh, you got me. Yeah. And you'd also maybe... Speak to other people? Speak to other people, change station, go, oh, while they're in this low point here, I'll see what they're saying over on NBC or whatever. That's a cool thing I didn't realise. So CBS, NBC and stuff started as radio broadcasts. Yeah. That's cool. Those are all... The iconic networks in America. Hmm. But yeah, I think it's funny. I'd always just bought... Like, I I don't know any more than that it caused... Supposedly caused panic. But the more you talk about it, the more it's like, yeah, obviously this is... They've beat this up for publicity. And the both the newspapers... Had a an axe to grind. Yeah, and uh, Awesome Wells was smart with publicity. Absolutely, and overnight the show got a sponsor. Right, it became like a very famous program. I mean, we're still talking about it. Yeah, I know. it's amazing, isn't it? So, did lots of people panic, or did no one panic? That's sort of the two sides that are presented here. The truth is, as is often the way, in the middle somewhere. Mm. The media did exaggerate people's responses, but some people were genuinely panicked by the broadcast. One couple, John and Estelle Paul. Travelled all the way from Manhattan to Hartford, Connecticut after hearing the play. They spent all of their savings to get on a train and beat the assumed rush of people fleeing in terror. So they heard the start of the broadcast or missed the, you know, the start, but they heard a bit of it and went, oh, everyone's going to try and get out of the city because of this. Let's go now. When they got off the train, they told two college students what they'd heard on the radio. A crowd gathered around them, not knowing you know, if these are crazy people or if this is actually happening, until someone mentioned Orson Welles. Estelle had seen him perform live before on Broadway and knew instantly that she'd been tricked. 
Well, you haven't been tricked. Like, they weren't... Yeah. It's, it there's no malice in it. It's not like they're like, this will bloody get him. Yeah, it's like you've like been... Like, you've not listened you've to... You've been confused. A yeah. lot of information. <laughs> I've been tricked. He got me again. I was just like, at that play, he wasn't really... <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't really burning down the theatre. That's, yeah... And it, yeah, it feels like it's almost like a like, just a test to to get rid of the idiots out of yeah, I think built it's a, up areas. It sounds like <laughs> what, they just built a wall after they left. It sounds like uh, Estelle and was it John? It's always John. John, Estelle. John and Estelle, Paul or Paltz. Paltz. It's good Paul that they. It sounds like they didn't have kids, and that's probably for the best. I think. No, no, they left them. <laughs> <laughs> they left them to die. We can't afford any train tickets. That's all, our savings will only cover. Two tickets. Do you like the how in the? That's kind of nice that back then, if two people got off and were telling a story that a crowd. Yeah, not, These hey. days, you can just imagine people just averting their eyes, yeah. and keep walking. But back then, you're like, "Huh, gather around, gather around, everyone. Hey, something's <laughs> happening. <Yeah>. Something's actually <laughs> <Something's> happening." Twenty-seven <laughs> percent uh, of the fourteen hundred letters written to Orson Welles did talk about panic and terror. So they're the complaint letters yep. I was talking about. Or some, in some ways, fan letters as well. Some people were genuinely scared. There's no denying that. It was just crazily over-exaggerated as to how panicked and how many were panicked by the broadcast. Mm. In reality, it was decades ahead of its time. History's first viral media phenomenon. That's great. At least in New Jersey, they were panicking here. <laughs> panicking I'm here. Panicking here. And you know what? You know what they're like, them New Jerseyans? Always panicking. Uh, Back to Wells and the career that he'd worried about would be ruined by the reaction. History tells us that the opposite is true. In fact, one of the only things that is certain about this broadcast is that it secured Wells' fame as a dramatist. It made him famous across the country and even around the world. Instead of ending his career, War of the Worlds catapulted Wells to Hollywood where he would soon make the film Citizen Kane. I've heard of it. Uh, because of the notoriety of the War of the Worlds, Wells was given a contract by RKO Pictures that gave him the unusual freedom to develop his own story, use his, uh, use his own cast and crew, and have the final cut privilege. So he said to them, I, you know, I'll make a film, but I get to edit it, and you don't get to see any of it before I give you the final cut. Which I just get f- to do everything. For a first-time director in his early 20s, is crazy. Wow. But they were like, yeah, all right. And whilst financially it actually wasn't a huge success at the time, it has gone on to be frequently cited as the greatest film ever made. And Wells was just 26 when he co-wrote, starred in, and directed it. Get fucked. Amazing. Isn't it? It's interesting that that's still not really um, done very often, people giving the creative that kind of freedom. Like, oh, look, the great, like what is often described as the best movie ever made was done this way. Anyway, we've got some opinions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could this movie go with a monkey? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I'm 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 on the side of yes for that. Obviously, I love. Look, I'm not saying Sidney Scheidenberg uh, is, um, you know, was a bad guy and remains a bad guy, but I just think he should back off sometimes. Okay, Sydney, what do you think about that? Well, I just, just don't understand. Citizen Kane. I mean. Does he have a cane? What, what's going on? What we need is a giant robot. An alien. No. A spider. It's always a spider. Get it in there. Get it in there, kid. Bada bing, bada boom. I'm a millionaire. That's how I make this money. Gotta go. We'll see you later. Sydney's in and out. He's in and out. You can't. What? It's a very one-sided conversation. He's always just in. 
Strange thing. Yeah, is you I- do a lot of. <laughs> Sorry, Orson's not I- in. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm his assistant. I'm his assistant. I will try and pass that on. Uh, butter bing, but sorry, what did how did you finish that? <laughs> I'm Sydney, he said. Okay. <laughs> I love seeing Dave. Oh, or I love seeing the process. I'll just say that. Mm. I almost, uh, almost well, lifted the curtain a bit too far a bit there. Too far. Whoa, like whoa. To, whoa, we lifted up a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of ankle. Just <laughs> <laughs> keep him, keep him entertained. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> People are panicking, listening, going, Sydney Scheinberg was in the studio. The whole time. I'm going to Connecticut <laughs> before the rush. Uh, the rest of Orson Welles' life is very fascinating. In many ways, never really up, never really living up to his young potential. But really, he deserves a whole other episode. I just wanted to end with one story. A little under two years after the broadcast of The War of the Worlds, Orson met the novel's writer, H.G. Wells. No. For the first and only time. Wells and Wells. They, different spelling? Are they is there any relation? Any? Uh, Wells is W-E-L-L-E-S, but H.G. Wells is with no second E, so right. W-E-L-L-S. So, related? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, coincidentally, the two men were in San Antonio, Texas, for separate speaking engagements. At a radio station, KTSA arranged for an on-air chat on October 28, 1940. Again, I have linked in the, desc- the description to a YouTube video of this conversation wow. that still exists. That's cool. And the difference in the sound in their voices is definitely worth listening to, if nothing else. H.G. Wells has a quite high-pitched voice of an old man, like an old English man. Well, the thing It's not that far off. And Orson Wells has his uh, famous American sort of booming voice, quite deep, so it's... It's very funny to hear them converse. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I wrote the story, what I thought would be fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, H.G. Wells expressed his delight at meeting my little namesake Orson. And joked that patronizing. And well and joked that Wells should drop the extra E in his name. Uh, they touch on the author's visit to the United States, listeners' reaction to the radio show, and uh, Wells' next project, Citizen Kane. So this is before it's come out. Oh, that's he asked great. him about it. It's a bit cute. And just to end here with a final fun fact. Oh, I'll be the judge of that. Dave, rephrase that sentence and say, now to end here with a fact. Now to end here with a fact that may or may not be fun <laughs> to the discretion of Bob Perkins. Thank you. Uh, Wells' directorial copy of the broadcast, the script, was auctioned in 1994 at Christie's in New York and was bought for the sum of... 1994. Sum of... £24,000 by one filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, who went on to make a version of The War of the Worlds in 2005 starring Tom Cruise. Where we started. spooky. (laughs) You mentioned him. I said Tom Cruise. £24,000. I really hated that movie. That was the first movie I remember really hating in the cinema. Like just sitting there with your arms crossed? Like for a long time I was just like being at the cinema was enough. And I'm like, I love it. It's big, it's loud. Look at how big that is. (laughs) (laughs) I judge how good a movie is on how big the screen is. But I remember that day being like, this is fucking stupid. Anyway, I guess that's what you get for watching 19th century science fiction. And absolutely finally, later this month on October 30, it will be 80 years since the broadcast. 80? And we're still talking about it today, so it's pretty amazing. It really is one of the most famous pieces of radio in history. Whether or not it did cause the panic, 
is hotly debated. That, but it still is obviously a very famous eight. and quirky event from uh, history. Very quirky. Thank you and good night. Oh, you dropped the mic there. Hey, um, Pun King checking in. Um, here's a little a pun riff I thought I could do. Um, this is already bad. So, um, okay. So, we set the War of the Worlds radio play uh, on Star Wars planet. Right, and we have Naboo. a key character, Naboo, right? And then a key, we've got a guy listening at home, right? His name is Panikin Skywalker, <laughs> eh? A <laughs> couple of high fives straight up. Didn't expect it. I thought that was bad, but they wanted to five it. All right, Pun King out. <laughs> Hell yeah, Don't I love embrace it. I love that you're embracing it. I'm looking to embrace it. I hate it, but, you know, if you can't beat them, dawn them. <laughs> As they do say. In the classics. I do say. <laughs> I do say. Can you tell it's getting late? <laughs> We're getting silly. What a great report, Dave. Thank you. I learned a lot there. Sorry about everything I said in between. If you could edit that out and, and say at the top know. that I was absent. <laughs> You're sorry about two thirds of what you said. Sorry. Yes, that's right. One third the of it was The other third banging. was perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> Mainly the noises. Um, yeah. So it's time for that great segment in the show, Fact, Quote, or Question. And the theme song goes... Fact, Quote, or Question. (laughs) 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 And this week's uh, Fact, Quote, or Question comes... Oh, Dave, do you want to explain how this works? Well, basically, uh, through our Patreon, patreon.com slash dogoonpod, if you want to support the show... You uh, get uh, rewards at different levels, including two bonus episodes every single month. That's probably the main draw. But at a certain level, you get to give us a fact, quote, or question at the end of the show and give yourself a title as well. That's if you're in the Sydney Scheinberg section. Get on board or get the hell out! (laughs) And this week, uh, our fact, quote, or questioner, our Sydney Scheinberger, is... Richard Frederick Schubert III. It's the oh, second time. He's back. He's dipped into the fact quote Shuby. or question. Shuby doo uh, And he's given himself the title, which is also his real life nickname of The Caveman. Can I suggest a nickname of Shuby doo Yeah, you can. And Shuby he'll take Doo-Wop. that on board. The Caveman's actually very cool, but I'm going to call him Shuby doo Last time around, uh, we talked about his name because it is a cracker name. We, we asked, uh, we, we talked about whether or not he, if he had a son that the name would go on. And he said. First of all, to answer your question, yes, if I have a son one day, I would like to continue the tradition and name him Richard Frederick Schubert IV. Great. And he has also asked us a question this week, and here it is. If you had the opportunity to do so, obviously if you didn't have the opportunity, this question is moot. Which fictional world slash universe would you want to live in and why? Examples, Middle Earth, Narnia, no, Oz, we, we understand Wonderland. what fictional world. Well, he's giving examples, and I just want, you know... Scooby-Doo! That's a dog. You want to live inside the f- dog Scooby-Doo? No, in the world where Scooby-Doo is real. Oh, okay. Or the War of the Worlds. No. You want to live in the War of the World? So uh, live in a world where aliens come and terrorize everyone for a while and then get a... You a, get a disease get and a drop disease. out. And really late in the movie, just start falling over and you go, this has been a waste of time. I know, what an anticlimax. <gasps> I want to live, although it was a sh- pretty average film, I want to live in the world where click, where I can just remote oh. control people. Doesn't that end badly? Oh, we could slap yeah. David Hasselhoff as many times as you like. Yep. I think I'd love to live 
in a world where the Saints win a premiership. And that feels fictional at the moment. <laughs> or 1966, one of the two. Now, probably the Back to the Future verse. Oh, good one. I'd love, I'd love to be in that DeLorean. I'd love to meet Marty and the Doc. I'd just try and weasel my way into that friendship. So it'd be Marty the Doc and... And Maddie Stu. Let Stew. me just say, my real answer would probably be the Poirot universe oh, because I love marvelous. the era, the 20s and 30s. I love Art Deco and I love Hercule P himself. Oh, Hercule. I'd love to meet the man. Yeah, what, what a dream. The man, the myth, the legend. What a guy. And another segment we do right at the end of the show with our Patreons is we like to thank a few as we go. Um, and I would love to kick this off tonight. We normally do a little game. Uh, We're going to name their radio play. Ooh, love it. I okay. love that. I'd love to thank uh, from Garland in Texas, United States of America, a place that we are now, thanks, thanks to our patrons, we're going to be heading over to sometime in 2019. That's right. We've hit the US tour goal. Can you believe it? It's so exciting. I'm so excited and I still don't fully believe it, to no, be honest. I'm I pinching don't. myself. I'm going to need to get a Gary. Throw that first pitch. Oh, I'm yes. I'm wearing my Railcats jumper right now. Yeah, anyway, I'd love to thank from Garland, Texas, Josh Harmon. Ooh. Ooh. Ain't no harm in asking. <laughs> <laughs> That's his radio play. What's it about? It's about, uh, uh, it's a love story. It's like a rom-com, a teen rom-com where the geek is like in love with a popular girl, but not because she's a popular girl because they grew up together and she's actually really sweet and lovely and he knows her and he's in love with her, but he's too scared to ask her out. And one of his friends says, there ain't no harm in asking. <laughs> and I love cra- when they say the title of the thing in the thing. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. They, and then they, is this a play? So they turn, oh, it's a radio play. I was going to yeah. say they turn and wink. They do do that, but no one sees yeah. it. <laughs> you just hear, ding. ding. <laughs> and you, you know. You know. You know, you know wink. Somehow they get that ding noise from a cabbage with water in it. Yeah. But they geez, are, they geez, know what they're to do. good, aren't they? Thank you so much, Josh Harmon, you, you bloody Josh. legend. Hopefully we'll be coming somewhere around the Texas area next year. I'd also love to thank from another great, one of our other favourite states in America, from Athens in Ohio, United States, I'd love to thank Graham Koch. Oh, Graham Koch, who may be related exactly. to Howard Koch, the alleged communist and Academy Award winner. What a Let's go with Academy what Award What a hot winner. double. Yeah. Okay, what would Graham's be called? I love the name Graham as well. Hamming it up. Graham. Graham, got it. Yep. Hamming it up. And it's love about it. a ham industrial. Um, <laughs> that's, ham that's industrial. A, that's a phrase I'm not going to be able to finish. Uh, about a man who works in the ham industry. Uh, he's be, he's he made a lot of money in ham. And now he has 20 days to spend all his ham money or he has to eat nothing but ham the rest of his life. Oh. <laughs> I love like a concept like that. Yeah. You either have to smoke this marijuana or go to jail forever. <laughs> it's like, all right, call me a doobie, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so he, but yeah, to spoiler alert, but he, uh, he ends up spending the money, but he decides anyway that he wants to eat ham the rest of his life. Good I love him. that ending. Good for that him for making that ending. choice. Graham, you bloody legend. Thank you so much, Kochi. And hopefully we'll be seeing you in old Ohio. Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming. Yes, I was thinking that. That's probably why I said it in that rhythm. Bit of Neil Young. All right. I would like to thank, if I may. Please. From Burnside in South Australia, Liam Maroney. Liam Liam Maroney. Liam Maroney. Liam Maroney. 
neither of you want to help me with this one. All right. Um, <laughs> I was thinking um, uh, the it was called it's a it's like a bio. Yeah. It's called Boney Maroney, and it's all about this man who is born with his bones on the outside. Wow, exoskeleton. <laughs> exoskeleton. <laughs> Liam, you're the main character. It's and a, director. Yeah, it's about his Don't trials and tribulations. Do they end up putting the bones inside him? No, in the end we find out that the bones were, were inside of all of us all along. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> you can't add to that. It's too perfect. Yeah, you're right. It's you like obviously it just let's let's make this movie. <laughs> Scheinberg can't even chirp in <laughs> and fix that up anymore because that is It's perfect. That's a perfect hit. First script he's never crossed anything out <laughs> and written giant Spider. He just underlined it. He said, yeah, yeah, EXO. Like that. Love that. EXO. Thank you so much, Liam Maroney. I would also like to thank from Denmark, can you believe, in Aalborg. Aalborg, my God. I'd love to go there. Tell your friends. We'll come to Denmark. I would like to thank Mikkel Lauridsen. Oh, that is great. Awesome. Mikkel, thank you so much for listening in Denmark. Uh, and, of course, you're the main character in Hamlet, A Prince of Denmark, the radio adaptation. Wow. Any twists? Are we bringing that into the modern age? Oh yeah, absolutely. Also style. It's um, he's addicted to podcasts, so he can't actually hear any of the other characters. So they talk to him, and he's got earbuds in the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so what? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Basically, just pointed his ears. Yeah. <laughs> can't hear. Sorry. Can't. Yeah. Sorry. I'd love to, but ugh. Oh, they're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> <laughs> they're talking Podcast. about. Talking about King Kong. <laughs> Oh, he's, listen, he's a Primates he's fan. A primate fan. Oh. Listen to a future rep. <laughs> thank you so that's much, nice. Mikael. Mikael, that's so cool. I love that. Denmark. May I thank some people? Please Please. Do. Like Please. the professional you are, Jess Perkins. Dead, set, parole. <laughs> um, I would like to thank from Philadelphia. Ooh. <gasps> hey, ooh. Hey, Born I'm from Philly. You want to eat some of them Philly cheesesteaks? Ooh. Hey, hey, ooh, ooh, my brother's here. You want to show me some love? Hey, go them flyers. Is that um, the right one? That's the right one. That's the right one. Nice. Hey, I'm um, the Fresh Prince over in West Philadelphia playing basketball. That's what I got to in a much more succinct way. <laughs> Most of my days. Mm-hmm. Hey, chilling out, relaxing, maxing. Oh, shit. I was just talking about how much I talk too much and I've uh, done it again. So, from Philadelphia, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to thank uh, Liren. Bromberg. Oh, yes. Never heard that name before, but I can't get it out of my mind now. Bromberg, Bromberg. is very good, too. No, it's Liren. Liren. Yeah, amazing. I don't know that name, but I like it. It's Have in you my head like an earworm. Ooh, it's like a catchy jingle. <laughs> Liren. Get me some of that Liren. I'm trying to think of a... Sorry, I was trying to think of a radio play. Oh, what about... Liren. Liren so far away. Flock so of, his his thing is called the Flock of Seagulls, which is the band that performed that hit. And it's it's sort of like a modern. Is that their only? That's oh the yeah, big, you better believe it. And a, f- a flock of seagulls. So and the play it's sort of like a modern Cats, where everyone's a seagull. It's <laughs> 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 my audition. Yeah, you got the part. Thank you. Oh, lead role. Lead yeah. seagull. Squawk is the lead character. Oh, I love that. Yeah, well, that's you. Is one of them called Hot Chip? Yes. <laughs> oh, that's good. Hot <laughs> Chip. Who will be playing Hot Chip? <laughs> um, uh, Liran Romberg. <laughs> <gasps> you got the part, kid. Congratulations. <laughs> you made that, it, Liran. That is a big role. And actually, that'll that'll make you go places. Tell you what a big role would do. Feed a few seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think they prefer hot chips. Hot <laughs> chips. One hot chippy, please. That's the opening scene. As if you could ever have one. Mm. Oh, but chuck them in a roll. you got a buddy. Ooh. Ooh. Hey, one buddy for life. Buddy. <laughs> buddy for now, buddy for life. Can we have buddies while we're in Are they London? buddies or butties? Butties. It is butties. 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 But we'll be Answer buddies. the question. Can we have butties? Um, yes. It's all we'll be having. Yeah. Can, we, can we call ourselves when we do? Can we call ourselves buddy buddies? Yeah. Butty buddies? Oh. Butty buddies. <laughs> I'm going to get us little t-shirts <laughs> Little ones <laughs> oh, what, what, to put on the roll as we eat them? <laughs> no. Our sandwich is oh, wearing A yummy little butty Is wearing a t-shirt? You've got to put it on and then take it off so you can Delicious eat it Delicious little butty butty <laughs> oh, Does that butty have diplomatic immunity? <laughs> I have diplomatic immunity To your thumb To your tummy <laughs> Let me in. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Thank you, Liren. Liren, that was that was inspired by you. Yeah, congratulations on that. Speaking of London, uh, I would like to thank someone <laughs> from there. Wow, what a segue! Seem free. You said I was a pro, and I'm proving it. <laughs> well, I mean, you said you're a pro. No, Dave said like a professional, and oh, I agreed. <laughs> you ran with it so far away. I agreed and reiterated. <laughs> yeah. I would like to thank from London. Richard Lloyd, which <gasps> is a real theatre name. Yeah, Lloyd Webber. Any relation? <laughs> Richard Lloyd Webber. Richard <gasps> Lloyd. Richard Lloyd. Lloyd. The Void. <gasps> the Void. Oh, I reckon his his radio play should be Mr. Sheffield the Musical. <laughs> I colon love it. the Void. <laughs> The void Mr. Sheffield colon the musical colon, colon the, the void. void. Like his career, <laughs> it's set fifteen years after the nanny, and uh, things have really hit a void. Have they? Yeah, he's oh. lost his fortune, and now he has to star in a Broadway show, write, direct, and act in it, and sell the programs to rebuild his fortune, <laughs> to win back Miss Fine, who has left. She's not Mrs. Sheffield anymore. She's now Mrs. Andrew Lloyd Webber. <gasps> his his arch nemesis. Wow. Can you believe? They had kids. They had twins or something. Well, yeah. now their stepdad is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Ever heard of him? He got an EGOT last week. Did he really? Yeah. Him and... Um, About three weeks ago, mate. Grow up. Uh, what's his name? John Legend and also Tim Rice at the same time. <gasps> Tim they, Rice. Curry they, Rice. Tim Curry Rice. <laughs> because they all produced... Uh, a musical together that Is one. he for Frankenfurter? No, you're thinking of Tim Curry Tim Curry Tim Curry, Tim Rice I always put my curry on my rice Get my Tim Curry on my Tim Rice <laughs> <laughs> Never seen Jess look any more blankly <laughs> Like I couldn't tell if she wasn't sure if she hated yeah. me Or just couldn't stand me It was one of the yeah, two Yeah, it's one of the two I learnt uh, on pod in the Congo episode of primates that Tim Curry and Tim Rice are two different people. <laughs> I don't know who Tim Rice is. Oh, he he writes a lot of the. I don't know that who that is. He's he's won I an mean, Academy Award. He, he's won I don't know. an Academy Award, a Golden Globe, an I know Emmy, what an ego a Tony. Is. He no. works with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's his right hand man. Is that right? No, Elton yeah. John. No. no, Andrew Lloyd Webber. He <laughs> co-wrote. He wrote Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dream. Did Elton okay, John so work Tim with Rice's. Tim Curry. No, no, Elton John did work with Tim Rice. They wrote The Lion King together. Tim Curry is just uh, the bad guy in the McHale's Navy remake starring really? Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold. Oh, wow. Roseanne's ex. Mm. Yeah, wow. What a claim. 
He was also the guy who uh, talked Austin Powers through. He said, come on, show that turd his boss. Anyway, all good memories. Yeah, so we've all achieved a lot now. He was also in True Lies. Yes. Great film. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this (laughs) episode. I've lost Dave. Uh, Jess, do you want to boot this baby home? You want me to wrap it up? Yeah, you're really good at telling people where to find us. Wrap it. Someone's listening right now. They're just they're just drifting off to sleep. So just do it in a real. If you want to get in touch <laughs> with Do Go On, you can do so on all the usual social media channels at Do Go On Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube. <laughs> we have a website, <laughs> which is Do Go On Pod dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find tickets to live shows, merch, and you can suggest a topic. And hey, remember you can also email us. At do go on pod at gmail.com. And I'll get back to you within the next two months. <laughs> I am sporadically on top of things. Is that a promise? Within two months? Yeah, yeah easily. Basically, that means in two months' time, <laughs> you'll be writing 50 emails. <laughs> yeah, I forgot because I moved house and forgot, like, I mostly do the emails on my desktop and I didn't have a desk, so I didn't set up my desktop computer. So I didn't do emails for like a couple of months until the desk arrived, until I set up my desk again. Shit. And then I was like, oh dear, I haven't done those emails. Oh so dear. So I just did a big bulk. Anyway, Ooh, that sounds me. painful. Yeah, it hurt. But that's when you, you tell that to his boss. Now, I know that that was a bit of fun there. That, you know, very beautiful. Oh, you're just going to do it all delivered. again, aren't you? I just want to say that that was probably the best it's ever been delivered. Oh. So, Nailed it. great job. I thought you were going to be like, okay, that was. Cute, um, but now no, I'm no, going to no. give all that information. That was me going. It has hey, to be like hey, that every time from hey, now on. Dave, that Dave, they're just drifting off to sleep now. If you could just okay. calm it back down, please. Okay. Um. What if they're not? What if they're driving? Don't put them to sleep. All right. Somewhere Wake in, up. Somewhere in the middle. <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Okay. Right, stay like awake. Normal is what we. I reckon right. just talk normally. Be alert, but not alarmed. Yes. Terrorism if you see something, is bad. say something. <laughs> <laughs> if you are something, do something. And if you want to. Something. Just ask. Something. Mm. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for book cheats. Obviously, book prime cheats. mates. There's no S on the end there. He I'm keeps afraid. doing that, doesn't he? I do a I do a soft T. <laughs> Sounds like T S, but it's his accent. T S Elliot. He's someone you should do. <laughs> Maybe I will. Mm. That's Maybe. all I was saying. It was a subtle okay. hint. <laughs> Thank you so much. Requesting a T S Elliot. Book cheat out on October eight. Primates. And the maybe catalog is already there. Check out and soon. Maybe you guys will phrase the bar. Yeah. Definitely. Mm, big time. If you do do a T.S. Eliot And my ventriloquism episode. podcast, obviously, oh. coming out uh, January 2020. We should sign <laughs> off with uh, Jess and your ventriloquist saying um, goodbye. Anyway, mm. ladies, thanks so much for tuning in. I'll say good- thank you and goodbye, but also saying goodbye is Jess and her puppet. <laughs> Bye! Bye! <laughs> <laughs> My, my dummy farted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and after being attacked by artillery... Oh, Jess just... She did it. That's a new Jess. She just passed me a banana. Well within the three-day... It's a new me. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you.